Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a fan of the Smug Film Podcast, do yourself a favor and head on over to patreon.com slash smugfilm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash smugfilm, where we've got a bunch of great rewards for you if you donate to the show. Just $1 a month gets you access to a library of over 20 bonus mini-episodes of the Smug Film Podcast. These mini-episodes will never be on iTunes or anywhere else. The only way to get them is by donating through Patreon. And that's not all. You also get streaming copies of my two feature films, Shredder and Rehearsals. All that for just a dollar a month. If you donate $5 a month, you get all that. Plus, we'll do a plug of whatever you want on one episode a month. Your Twitter handle, your website, your whatever. If you donate $10 a month, we'll plug whatever you want on every single episode of the show. It's an incredible deal. They're all incredible deals. So once again, that's patreon.com slash smugfilm, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash smugfilm. Head on over there today and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the sm- yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. It's been a while. Uh, I am here. Uh, see, I totally forgot my whole groove intro. <laughs> Hold on. It's uh, how does it go again? It goes. Uh, Welcome we're, we're to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host Cody Clark. With me today is, and I forget your name, Cody Clark. Cody Clark. Two Cody Clarks. Yeah. Okay. And we got somebody on Skype. But what's your name again? I think again? it's Jenna. Je- you're, Je- you're Jenna, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or wait, wait, I'm Harry. Harry. Harry, yeah. it's oh, been a hey, while. Harry. It's that guy, Harry. Yeah, you're doing, I'm, I'm him. Yeah, you're doing so well on the YouTube that you don't have Bruce. time for your... Yeah, that's, uh, that's me. Rest in peace, yeah, Harry Bruce. You don't have time for your smug film family anymore there, Bruce. Yeah, I'm sorry. But I am Cody Kobe. Clark. That's that's one truth we've said. And John D'Amico Hello. is here in studio. First time in... Six years, seven years. It's been a long... What has it been? Like two months? Three it's months? It's been probably more than two months. Yeah, we went on a hiatus and then it was supposed to be like just a month. It was like, finally, we're just going to give ourselves four weeks where we can just like recalibrate, record some stuff, etc. And it turned into two months. Life without each other was better. And I went on a walkabout. I briefly worked on a ranch. Yeah. You got married. You were married, married and divorced, right? Yes, she was murdered, and then I had to hunt the guys down. It was a whole thing. Yeah, and also we have here, of course, Brad Avery, who hasn't been on Brad Avery quite a while. Yeah, I haven't actually. What you been up to? What do you What you been doing there, Brad? Just uh, working, watching movies. I've been watching the the Friday the Thirteenth movies, but we're not going to talk about those today. We're going to talk about uh, something else. Yes, and then Brad, of course, with his famous catchphrase, by the way, everybody, I saw it at Harvard. Yeah. So please uh, hashtag Brandy. Yeah. Hashtag I saw it at Harvard. If you're if you're listening to this episode and want to discuss it, that's the official hashtag for this episode. That's Brad's catchphrase. He doesn't like it one bit. No, but it's sticking. We're we're gonna make it stick. And the topic. Make it a thing. (laughs) I I can make it a thing. I have I have the poll. I have uh, the uh, the know-how. This episode is about 1928. This is 1928 in film. We haven't done an in-film one in quite a while. And we haven't done a uh, 
a 21 20s one yet so this Ever, is our, yeah is our first, first silent year we've almost never really discussed silent film in depth here yeah the first silent year that we're choosing is actually the last real silent year in film history mm. yeah is, we we figured we'd go in guns blazing yeah kind of so we're gonna go in reverse order so we'll we'll work our way back to all the other silent films later eventually we're start yeah. at the end but yeah, 1927, a jazz singer comes and goes, uh, which is a half-talky movie, and that really put uh, uh, an expiration date on the medium of silent filmmaking, which is, in its way, a pretty distinct medium from sound filmmaking. It has a different sort of toolkit. By 1929, Hollywood was going to be an all-sound operation. So you have this year now where we are under the guillotine the entire year, and they know it. In uh, 28, you have Lights of New York, which is the first all-talky film. It's a little complicated. Uh, the Jazz Singer was a silent film with sound sequences in it. Mm. By 28, they commit fully that they're all sound films. The way you know you used to get... Do you remember how The Dark Knight was... It had IMAX sequences? Right. It's sort of the same sort of thing. Um and then uh, 28, you get Steamboat Willie as the first sound cartoon, which is by that metric, then the first film with a soundscape entirely created in post-production, which I think if you're a film person, is kind of an interesting milestone as well. In 28, Leo the Lion roars before uh, White Shadows on the South Seas. So it's really the end for silent cinema. So it's interesting to look at how it went out. And the most interesting thing to me about it is it went out as beautiful as a medium has ever looked. I'm looking at my notes for this year, and basically every movie I have scribbled somewhere on it, perfect cinematography. Right. And that, I think, is the essence of 28 to me. You know, when, when they had to tell stories only by visuals, the, the visuals were cared for. Mm. And the first it's one... Like, it's sorry. almost like you want a few more years before we get sound. Obviously, yes. sound brought the medium to new heights but it also when sound film came in the technology was so clunky and big and cumbersome that it sort of reset everything and everything kind of went back to a lot of flat staging not universally but in a in a lot of cases you started yeah cameras locked down they got a lot heavier yeah so the thing is that by 1928 they had solved the visual problem they had figured out how film is its own unique medium because if you look at the films of 1910 of, of the early films, they kind of had this, this play-like uh, proscenium arch staging, and they, they slowly learned how to break that apart. And by 1928, they had just taken the camera and just flew it wherever they wanted to. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it's sort of like if we got maybe like just a few more years of that, it would have gone to even greater heights probably. It's, but, it's very interesting because it, it, it doesn't happen again for a generation of filmmaking. And I think people don't quite realize that now you know what i mean though like the transition to sound was so fast which if you think about it i remember remember the transition to uh to hd tv and how it took right. years mm. and years and years and the transition to um in the 70s the 60s the 70s the transition to color television was so slow it really wasn't until the mary tyler moore era that color was like an expectation uh, and the transition to color in filmmaking took arguably even longer. Low-budget stuff was... What do you say? 
I was going to say the better comparison today, if you want to understand how rapid and sudden this was, is the transition from film to digital and how it just really undercut everything when theaters started going to DCP and this digital projection. And suddenly, you know, film was an endangered species. Yeah. You know, you, you only have these rich guys like Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson who can, you know, bring in millions of dollars regardless who are able to show their, their new movies on film. And that's about it. And it really hit people out of the blue. That's the that's the real big comparison here, I think. Yeah, but I it's mean, a it's far more same. substantive dif- difference. The film to to digital thing is is a a major uh, financial and a and a depending on who you're talking to, major aesthetic decision. This was uh, that level of change with a structural change that affected the very nature of the storytelling. Exactly. Um, you had, not only did the cameras lock down in the 30s, but the people's places on screen locked down in the 30s. And you don't start to see, because they had to stand near microphones. And that took a long time to figure out. So you don't start to see people uh, having the same freedom within the set and the same freedom of camera literally until the Nagra was invented in the late 50s into the early 60s. So we have this period from the 30s to the 60s where nothing technologically can look like it looks in this era we're in now at the height of it. Another thing that happens with the advent of sound is that they have to start testing all the actors and the stars for their voice. They have to start caring about their voice because what happened is audiences got acquainted to, to certain actors, you know, like Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd, but also a lot of other stars that, that people today usually don't know about, like Mary Pickford, Lillian Gish, and they had to, to look at their voices. Audiences kind of, you know, they saw them and they envisioned their own voice for them, and they had the, the voice ingrained in their minds, and that often created a weird clash when they would finally see the actor actually speak, and their voice may not have matched what they thought it was. So they would do sound tests. They would bring the actor in, they'd read off some lines on camera, and then they would, you know, they'd go out and they'd say, Harold Lloyd has a voice, and they would give him, and if you you failed that test and your career kind of ended. And so a lot of careers, a lot of the biggest stars in the world just disappeared overnight for the most part. And you'll notice if notice this, if you look through some filmographies, if you look at some of the biggest stars of the silent era, you notice that their filmography just kind of tapers off to from several, you know, five, ten films a year to, to fewer and fewer. And then in the 30s, they might have a few films through the pre-code era up through 1934, and then they just kind of drop off because... This just ended careers, the change from silent to sound. And people who had grown up, imagine if just overnight Leonardo DiCaprio just disappeared from from movies altogether because he just couldn't make the transition to, to digital or whatever it is. It's, it's like that. Stars of that caliber just disappearing overnight. All right. So if we can go back to the visuals for a second, I mean, we, we've been talking about how great the visuals were in 1928. And the first film we're going to be talking about here from 1928, honestly, arguably one of the best film performances of all time, and that is Passion of Joan of Arc, oh, which is yeah. is essentially our best picture choice, I think, all three yeah. of us. Yeah, unanimously. Yeah, at the end of this, we're going to have a little Oscars, and I'm just going to spoil it now and say, like, it's basically Joan of Arc. Yeah. For, best actress, for them all. best director, best cinematography. Well, maybe cinematography might be in the air, but best picture, best director. 
Joan of Arc has very interesting cinematography. It's quite beautiful, but it's also very... Uh, I have never seen another movie that looks like The Passion of Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. I've never seen another movie that shackles you to the human face to the extent that The Passion yeah. of Joan of Arc does. That's the right word, shackles. You are That's you you spot. cannot escape the faces of the people in this movie, which He's is agonizing. Yeah, which it's it's mostly drawn from the real court records of the trial of Joan of Arc. It's only the trial. If you haven't seen it, fuck you. I'm gonna refrain. If you haven't seen that, just watch it. <laughs> it's on Hulu yeah, now. You know, Criterion's got it. It's out there. Uh, it's it's as good a movie as has ever been made, and it's pretty much just her trial. Uh, and, and it's, you've never seen another trial film like it. The, the closest I can think of is if the whole of 12 Angry Men, it was shot like the 10 minutes before the end, you know, mm. that, that like really harsh, those close ups where you, uh, you almost, they're so well focused and so well lit that you, you sense the face as like a 3d element coming at you. Well, you know the whole I mean? movie feels like it goes by in about 10 minutes. It's yeah. it's a very, very fast-paced movie for something that, that hones in on just one specific uh, chapter in her life. It, it really, it blows by. It, it, it After I finished it, I felt like it was like 40 minutes long. I felt like yeah. it was, I watched a short film. And also, you it almost has like a snuff quality to it because we don't see this actress ever again. That's right. Yeah, Maria so, Falconetti was she was grabbed from a a comedy stage play and put in this and I think she's in like two other movies that are both lost or something like that. So it's really as though she dies. Yeah. Which takes it to a whole other level, which of course couldn't have necessarily been anticipated, but I really think it takes a, a film that's a 10 and brings it to a, an 11 almost. Right, because uh Ingrid Bergman's role as Joan of Arc um, who directed that one? Was that Rossellini? The 48 one? Might have been. I'm going to check that. Uh, but the, the Ingrid Bergman one, it's good and there's a lot going for it, but it's always Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. You look and it's Ingrid Bergman and, you know, she's not going to cut her hair because it's Ingrid Bergman's hair and, you know, you know, it's... It's, uh, it's Victor Fleming, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Hollywood. The old, uh, Wizard of Oz man himself. Yeah. But, um, yeah, well, the thing about Joan of Arc, so the, the, I almost, when I went to rewatch it for this, I kind of just remembered it being a lot of close-ups, and I forgot that there's also a lot of other things going on there that just, like, there's these, uh, these sequences with the torture devices, and it goes up to the Oh, yeah, that montage execution. of them. Yeah, so you, you have this sort of, this real, uh, it's very visceral, and it's very just painful, and I think, you know, the reason Falconetti's performance gets kind of held up sometimes as some some people call it literally the best performance in the history of film and it, it's one of those things where you, you think like oh come on and then you see it and you're like well that, that might actually be accurate that might be true because her face is full of so much pain and suffering but also just this devotion to to her god yeah she's a true believer and you it's see like that Kinsky all in her eyes. yeah yeah that's that's actually one of the few faces in film that might actually compare to, to what we're talking about here. If you've never seen passion of Joan of Arc and even looking at the stills doesn't have the same effect as when you watch the film in motion and you just watch the glisten in her eyes, uh, as, as she like tears up, she's always on the verge of, of crying, but she never really 
completely cries. It's always on the verge. It's it's a film on the edge in a way like that because it always feels like it's it's building to this 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 release that and then when the release finally comes, it, it's in her death, and that is sort of what um really brings it to the to the climax that makes it what it is. I think. I yeah. Think so once again. Anybody who hasn't seen this film, this is kind of required viewing if you care about film, I would say. Also, you, you got to see this one. Uh, a side note about it. Uh, Joan of Arc was a Danish film. Uh, Carl Dreyer was a Danish director, which you don't think of as a film country the way you think of, say, France or uh, Japan or something. You know, Denmark doesn't really jump out as a film con- country. But in the teens and the 20s, uh, Danish film was one of some of the most daring and smartest and most innovative, and not just that, but also one of the greatest assembly line systems of filmmaking. They had a, a sort of an early Hollywood studio system as well, and they uh, they were able to create European style art cinema with a Hollywood studio style efficiency which is something that I'm not sure has ever been achieved again. Maybe the Germans in the 70s sort of pulled it off. But uh, Denmark, uh, they they made some incredible advances in cinema at this time. And if you're ever bored and you don't know what to watch, just start diving into Danish cinema in the 20s. So is Falconetti everybody's uh, best actress for the year? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Are there any other contenders? I would I would put forth uh, the chick from Lonesome. Oh yeah, which I think we can go into next. Lonesome, which got a great Criterion release on Blu-ray and DVD, and of course, uh, Passion of Joan of Arc is on Criterion as well. So you can check that out through any of the the Criterion streaming outlets, as well as I think Lonesome is is streaming through either Hulu or whatever. They're they're switching yeah. to that new one soon. I don't know Got a that... dope Blu-ray too. Yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous Blu-ray. More like a gold ray. Yeah, fucking platinum it's ray. It's kind of crazy to me that that fucking Satyajit ray. Never <laughs> fucking man ray. Nick Ray. Fucking. Well, uh... we'll talk about man ray later with uh, <laughs> with uh, surrealism, but um, oh, yeah. that, that film had never had a like a home video release, and it's just kind of amazing to me that it goes from this this movie that had been com- almost completely forgotten, except by the most hardcore of, of film historians. And then it just has this gorgeous Blu-ray release overnight. Well, we have another one of those that that hasn't quite made it that far that you and I are on board with that we're going to have to get the masses on. Uh, I don't want to get into it too much yet, but Shooting Stars is going to come up. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, we'll talk about that in a bit. But let's focus on Lonesome. Lonesome right now. Okay. To give Lonesome Lonesome its due as we are talking about it. Lonesome is by Paul Fejos. um, And... It's about an hour long, and it's just a sweet little story about two people in the, the big city of New York who meet just a man and a woman. They they live by themselves in their apartments, and they by chance they just they meet. They have this this wonderful date. They go to to the amusement park, and then they they lose each other. Look at this yeah, guy they, doesn't know it's Coney Island. I know, I know, I know it's because he Island. saw it at Harvard. Ouch! Yeah, I actually saw it at uh, in Brookline. So. In Brookline, which is Massachusetts, yeah. Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, not not even. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, they, so they, they they go to Coney Island, blah blah blah, and they they lose each other, and they think they've lost each other forever, and after and they then they did, and then they die. Yep. Yes, it's that. Yeah, it's very sad. 
So yeah, lonesome. That was a lie. They didn't. They, it's okay, everybody. They mean if, if our that. listeners can't tell when we're lying at this point, then I don't want them as my listeners. It's really beautiful. It's another one where it's yeah, you, the yeah. note next to it is perfect cinematography. Just unbelievable hand tinting. Mm. Um, yeah, there's color. Yeah, and there's sound. lonesome's honestly, it's my kind of silent. It's like if I'm if I'm in the mood for silent, that's the kind of silent I'm gonna I'm gonna aim for. That's just my wheelhouse. I love the fact that like as it opens up, this actress, she looks extremely modern when she wakes up because she's just in bed. She doesn't have her like 20s outfit and, you know, hair style yet. She could be out of any era. And then what's really interesting is in that that first scene where you see her get dressed and everything, you see her slowly become just a 20s stereotypically looking woman like the, the the woman you have in your head that you've seen in silence before or photos from the 20s you see her become that go from something timeless to something very specific time perioded there's a great quote as well that i really really dug it goes in the whirlpool of modern life the most difficult thing is to live alone and that's a that's a yeah, very that's, a, nice one, that's yeah. a very timeless concept that and, and that's a quote from the film i should specify that that's an incredible uh concept and really i think just takes this movie from a very time period thing into a very timeless thing instantly also the fact that it's just a guy and a girl falling in love that's timeless in and of itself just to give the actress her due um, yeah please barbara kent uh barbara kent and she uh was actually she acted in films up until 1942 uh her other big role was in uh flesh and the devil and yeah uh, she's a bad guy and, uh, she also she was with Harold Lloyd in a lot of the Harold Lloyd sound films. Yeah, Feet First. Um, she died in 2011. Oh, yeah, she, uh, she was 103. Damn. So, so Barbara uh, Kent did yeah. fine, everybody. Yeah. Oh yeah, she she made it far, and she you're right, she's she's perfect in that movie. She's so good. Yeah, there's great there's great she's New York City. Short, uh, right, I remember her being really short in it. Yeah, she's a little short. Yeah. One one thing that Lonesome does too is that um. And this goes back to what we were talking about in the intro with with sound is that Lonesome is a silent film. It was shot as a silent film, but sound had really come in. Everyone was just buzzing about it. And they were saying, we got to get sound in there. So there's actually a few sequences that they added in Mm -hmm. that are sound film. And so it really the first time it happens too, it's such an amazing moment because it it cuts in They're They're on the beach together and you're watching this like it's a silent film. And all of a sudden it cuts to close up. And they just start talking. Oh, it's and beautiful! It's, it's magical moment. And yeah, I love the fact that, like, it's chillingly when beautiful. you finally hear her, her voice is so like dorky and awkward that it adds like this extra dimension to her completely. Because you've yeah. been watching, you've just been watching her as just this like you know pedestrian from afar, essentially for the majority of the film thus far. And then you hear her voice, and it just like. Man, it's like yeah. you, you didn't imagine that voice for her, but once you hear it, it's perfectly her. It, it's it's a fantastic little technique to do it that way. Yeah, it's There's, like the Wizard of Oz when they open the doors and it's yep. color. I mean, I wonder if that's where Wizard of Oz got it from. Hmm. I think the Flems was watching. Yeah, it could be. And there's great there's great subway stuff. I'm always a sucker for that kind of thing in like an older film. That's the kind of stuff I want to see as a you know as a Brooklyn native, as a as a New York City boy. The, I always enjoy there that. There was stuff. another great uh, Coney Island film this year too, by the way, Harold Lloyd's Speedy. Mm-hmm. Ah, good transition. Which we should. Yeah, one of the best uh, Harold yeah. Lloyd's. Uh, yeah. Speedy, yeah, might be top two or three for me. 
with old Harold Lloyd. Uh, no, of Harold Lloyd, but okay. uh, maybe of the year, honestly. Uh, it's it's just wonderful local filmmaking, mm-hmm. which is such like a thing for us. I mean, fucking Babe Ruth is in it. <laughs> you know, like it's it's uh he's a he's a cabbie in in um, Coney Island is the premise, and they just sort of go from there, and he's just bumming around Coney Island, getting into hijinks. And it's I would like to see somebody actually intercut it with Lonesome. Because mm. I think a lot of the same locations are in it, and you could almost tell the two stories simultaneously through the locations. Uh, the The Harold Lloyd story is sort of a bittersweet one because his estate was very protective of his films. Uh, so when Chaplin and Keaton went into the public domain, and we ended up with all these, you know, busted up copies of their movies, um, and you know, like Laurel and Hardy and everything, they they sort of entered the public consciousness and you saw them everywhere, but nobody was around to take care of them for a very long time. So the mental image, at least for me, of, say, Laurel and Hardy is, like, pretty bad Yeah, it's, it's print. the bootleg VHSs that you saw at the video yeah. store. It's, like, very, very poor quality. You know, the con- as far as content, great stuff. Right. But there, you know, you want to, it's almost like the thing of like, you want to be able to separate art from artists. You want to be able to separate in your heart of hearts, you know, a crappy presentation from a quality piece of work, but but it does, it does get in the way. It's definitely tough. Lloyd, you have a, the opposite story. Harold Lloyd was in his prime as popular as any of them, except for Chaplin. You know, I think he was more popular than Keaton. He was as popular, if not more than Laurel and Hardy. He was, a major, major play. I mean, Clark Kent. Clark Kent is based visually on Harold Lloyd. Mm. The reason he wears those glasses, the reason he looks the way he does, is because they were intentionally making him look like Harold Lloyd. He was that popular at his time. But his estate, after he died, sort of locked his films up under key. And the result of that is that they exist now in beautiful beautiful condition mm-hmm. the best of anything from that time i mean nothing looks better than a harold lloyd movie from this time but they haven't gotten to have the second life that laurel and hardy and chaplin and keaton and everybody the did when they were on is TV. that they they might now be getting that because criterion has to rights them all and they're slowly rolling them all out they, they rolled out speedy Safety last, the freshman. Yeah, since I, maybe three or four years ago. Been, yeah, it's funny yeah. that you mentioned how he's kind of the one that's the most forgotten because until we decide we're going to do 1928, he'd actually been one of my blind spots. And I always knew about Harold Lloyd. I'd seen the clip from Safety Last of him hanging on the clock, but I never really watched a full movie of his. So I wanted to, before I watched Speedy, go back and watch some of the, the big ones. So I went through there and... All the Criterion restorations are, are gorgeous. They, again, like Lonesome, which is also a Criterion, just the Blu-ray is is pristine. When we so, say gorgeous, by the way, we mean like unnervingly good looking. Yeah. Like it, it looks incredible. It, There's something ethereal about silent films and just the way they look in general. And the movement in them is so different from the way movement works in, in modern sound film. Because often they're 18 frames a second. Yeah. So they they literally are moving at a different speed from real life, which is a subtle and gorgeous thing, I think. What did you think of your trip through Lloydsylvania? I loved it. Um, 
It's hard to say what my favorite is. It might, it might be Speedy. Um, I, I still have so many more to watch from him. Did you watch uh, The Kid Brother yet? That one is good. No, I haven't. I haven't watched that. I watched the Kevin Brownlow documentary. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Done. That was pretty good. kind of goes through his, his history. And I watched some of the shorts that came on the uh, discs as bonus features as well. Like Each of the, the Criterion, Harold Lloyd uh, discs has like three short films of his as well, and they're all restored. So that that's another nice little uh, extra. I, I, I'd say it, it might be Speedy. That's that's my favorite of them so far. I, I think it's just so much happens in that movie too. Let's get back to it. it yeah. Like there's that that tram chase. Yeah. Yeah. What it, it's what is it? So this is the one where his his father's tram is the last in the city, and they want to get rid of it, but it has to operate once every twenty four hours by like some bu- weird bylaw. <laughs> Or it gets shut down, and then developers can come in, get rid of it, and then make money off of their uh, their taxis. The old tram scam. Exactly. So the 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 big climax of the movie is this giant chase where the 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 tram has to complete a circuit by a certain amount of time, and he's sort of racing through the city with this as the the weird gangster mafia people are trying to stop him so that they can then legally shut down the tram and then move in with their development. And I don't know if you want to take it from here, but I, I'm trying to remember back to just sort of it, it's it's hard to describe in a way that, that captures the the zaniness and the humor of it. But it's, it's plucky, it's, really. Yeah, is what it is. the thing I remember most of it is like the set pieces. Yeah, you know, they're they're these kind of iconic set pieces, and you see it right on you see one of them right on the cover of the the Criterion for Speedy. Um, but they're these iconic little set pieces, which. You know, of course, Lonesome kind of goes to the same locale. And yeah, so I think the the thing that I like the most about Harold Lloyd as compared to Chaplin and Keaton, which I, you know, I like, I like Chaplin, I like Keaton just fine, y'all. But Harold Lloyd, his set pieces excite me more on some level that I don't know that I could necessarily explain. He was better at tension than the rest of them. Yeah, maybe that's it. Here's the thing about the three of them. 1928, I think, is the last year where all three of them released a major film, which is kind of a really interesting thing. And not only did all three of them release a major film, but all three of them released what's one of their best films. So you have like a perfect case study of each of them. Harold Lloyd had Speedy, which is this plucky, driving... The best description I ever heard of Harold Lloyd was that he wasn't gifted the way Keaton was gifted and Chaplin was gifted. And Harold Lloyd's films are a man who's where he is because of sheer 1920s will. He's like Batman. It's like you know that 90s optimism. He doesn't have superhero powers. Too about about uh, Harold Lloyd is that Chaplin, uh, he was an orphan, right? He, he yes. grew up in Britain, super broke. Uh, Keaton comes from vaudeville, a, a traveling performer. But but Harold Lloyd was upper middle class, upper class. He, he sort of went into this out of his own sort of uh, interest and passion. And he just... Yeah. He, had a, a penchant for the physical, for, for doing these physical activities, but he wasn't coming from the same place that Keaton and Chaplin were, which is uh, this sort of uh, poverty. He, he never knew poverty. Or, or <laughs> just a lifetime of it. 
You know, yeah. Keaton in his film, The Cameraman, this year, which is actually my favorite Buster Keaton film, the one he put out. This, yeah, it's this one year. of his absolute best. It's much better than uh, Steamboat Bill Jr. Yeah, Steamboat Bill also Jr. I, yeah, I don't have much to say about it, But The Cameraman, there's that sequence where Buster Keaton is playing an entire baseball game by himself. Mm. And you can see that this is a man who's done physical comedy literally since he could walk. He was an, in a vaudeville act as a toddler, Buster Keaton. He was born to do this. And it's remarkable, and it's so funny, and it's so graceful when it works. And Harold Lloyd isn't quite like that. He's not graceful, and he's not poignant the way Chaplin is. The best description I ever heard of Chaplin was that nobody ever wanted your love more. So I don't think there was ever a person in the history of film who the audience could imprint on the way they could imprint on Charlie Chaplin. It just doesn't happen with anybody else. And Lloyd didn't have that either. And he didn't have Keaton's remarkable physical um, training. He just had this refusal to fall behind, which in a sense is what all his movies are about. Yeah, They're all about somebody who just like will not fall behind, even though by the numbers he can't do it. Lloyd's physicality kind of reminds me of Stephen Colbert. Um, just the look of his his face, yeah. his hair, his glasses, um, his reactions yeah. to things. I, I definitely see a similarity there. I, I say, so we talked about Lloyd and then Keaton. So Keaton has the cameraman and uh, Steamboat Bill Jr. And then Chaplin has the circus this year, which oh, I think... Oh, Chaplin. John, you wanted to talk about the fact that the circus is so... So good, but no one ever talks about it. Well, the tragedy of the circus is that it's in between the gold rush and city lights, which like as a movie is like if you're a middle child and your older brother is George Washington and your younger brother is Abe Lincoln, like you are just you are fucked. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't matter who you are. It's like James Madison. Yeah, you're James Madison. Yes. The circus is James Madison. <laughs> Basically, exactly. It wrote the goddamn Constitution. But it's just, it's not Washington and it's not Lincoln. But yeah, I mean, when we were talking about acting before and we all landed on Falconetti as the greatest actress of the year and the greatest performance of the year, the only other performance I could think of as competition to her was Chaplin in the circus. And the only reason it, it doesn't, I think ring that much for anybody else is that he did, he managed to do something this good through like 120 films, including his shorts. I think Charlie Chaplin was the greatest actor of all time, at least since the invention of filming. And I think the fact that he could do a movie like the circus and not only does he not talk in it, but you don't even notice that he doesn't say in it, anything in it because you hear him speak all through this movie. And his physicality is is hitting on like another level of humor that like I, I see a lot of Borat in it because there's parts in this film where he's being taught how to be funny and he doesn't understand how he's supposed to be funny. And of course, he's you mean funny. the character. No. Yeah, yeah, the character. There's not outtakes <laughs> of, of like a, a no, funny no. coach for Charlie Of course Chaplin. not. No, I, I feel like the man car- just exudes empathy. Yes. And his character is learning how to be funny and is being funny by not knowing how to be funny and is being funny accidentally. It's like when Borat's taking the the comedy lessons, it's like 
you're you're being funny by breaking rules of what's funny, I, I, the rules that somebody's dictating to you. Essentially, um, there, there's there's great moments throughout. There's like daring shit in it as well. There's, yeah, I mean the end when he's standing on a high wire and all the little monkeys are attacking him. Yeah, That's again, a great. Yeah, again, we should just talk yeah. about compare every single movie to Aguirre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this, Akiri is very much in the shadow of 1928. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, the circus is incredibly underrated, and I think it's underrated because of what precedes it and what follows it, because I would argue, I know Modern Times has quite a big support base, but I'm, I would argue- I'm just, a Modern Times man myself. I love that one. My picks for what are the two best and the two definitive chaplains are City Lights and The Gold Rush. And this is the the middle child of them, and it's it's absolutely James Madison. But I, uh, I like the circus more than the Gold Rush. But I know that you're right about kind of the Gold Rush being George Washington in that way of just of being so big and monumental in itself. But I think the circus is is actually a better film if if I had to choose between the two. What's an interesting comparison for the circus is um, there's a King Vidor movie from 28 called The Patsy with Marion Davies. Mm-hmm. And it's an early sort of a proto screwball comedy. And it's really fun and it's really good and it's very jokey. Uh, you saw it, right, Brad? Yeah, I watched that one. Yeah, you know, and it's like very jokey and it's very sweet and it hits the same sort of theme of the circus where it's this person, this sort of 1920s underdog story that's like a romance crossed with, you know, like an interesting setting. And yeah, it's, and it's about a girl who, who her, her, Mother and her sister just dump on her all day, and her father's really her only defender. And it, it's a it's a romance, it's a romantic comedy, and she's just kind of putting up with with all this shit that gets dumped on her for no reason. And it, it's this sort of family comedy where she's she's dealing with the the guy she's into, and she's dealing with her family and her her mother and all that. And so it, but the character, I see what you're saying is this person who is constantly dumped on, but is just so good natured in themselves that you're like, why is this person, you know, so hated on by all the people around them? Right. And the reason I think they're an interesting comparison is as good as the Patsy is, it is dying to be a sounds movie. Yep. It is screaming for being released two years later. You know, there's so much, there's so many, intertitles in it and there's so much dialogue in it and Marion Davis is spectacular but like Harold Lloyd and like Keaton and like Douglas Fairbanks and like every actor I've ever seen in the world with the sole exception of Charlie Chaplin and to an extent Falconetti they want to talk Chaplin the little tramp you don't even think of him as occupying a world where speech exists you know? Yeah. Like, it's just not, he does not need to communicate with speech, which is why I think all the, all the sound movies that Chaplin made, he was never the little tramp in them because he felt the same way that, you know, this character is just, it, it's beyond speaking. Which Chaplin is so hard. Was one of the only people who could make a, a silent movie in Hollywood after 1929 because he made City Lights in 1931 and then he made Modern Times which in technically has some sound. But yeah, what, so what is that? That's eight years later after we pretty much established the death of silent cinema. He still made one. Yeah. 
but nobody else was. I think F.W. Murnau, no Murnau was the only other one who ever did it. He did it with Taboo, and it was a huge shitstorm. Uh, and he took a lot of shit for it. The only one who ever could do it without ever, ever having to answer anybody was Chaplin, and it was because he owned United Artists. Which actually reminds me, uh, bringing up United Artists, if we want to kick back to Paul Fejos and Lonesome for a second, the heartbreak of being a silent film person, and I think a lot of the audience will understand this heartbreak, but those of you who aren't, we're not really a silent film podcast, so a lot of the audience might not Mm -hmm. have that background the way we do. And if you do, I encourage you to get it. But the heartbreak of it is um, 80%, they estimate, of silent cinema is lost. It's just gone. They didn't think of movies in terms of preserving them in the era. If a movie was like Birth of a Nation and it made all the money in the world, they would keep the prints around and they would keep circulating them. But if something left circulation, it was like a stage play or like a newspaper. They would get rid of it. And if they needed to redo it, they would redo it. You and know, all the, all the fires in, in silent films are uh, nitrate film burning. They're burning other movies. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you've seen Inglorious Bastards, if trying to understand this, they, they go into that where the, the nitrate film was so volatile, it could just combust, and then nothing could put it out until it burned itself out. And so vault fires wiped out countless films. Yeah, and the reason I bring this up is the director of Lonesome, who made this movie that just staggered us, Paul Fejos, made another movie in 1928 called The Last Moment. Uh, and it's all about a man who's drowning and it's flashbacks of his life as he's drowning. Uh, and Charlie Chaplin loved it so much that United Artists bought it immediately, Chaplin's studio. Uh, he basically came out of the theater and purchased the movie. It got rave reviews. Gil Deleuze in his, in his books on cinema in the 80s, which are like, you know, cornerstone templates of a, a film background. He goes on and on about them too, um, about this idea that they were about sort of disturbances of memory and and the, he says, the failure of recognition, which is a very silent cinema thing. The silent cinema like the 60s was this era where the avant-garde could exist in the same films as popular entertainment. Yes. So the film I pieced together in my head for this movie is almost like a, a cubist film. You know, it's it's something uh, something like an early Citizen Kane or The Power and the Glory, where you're drifting from timeline to timeline, and the and and the characters are coming alive and vignettes that are filling out their lives. And we've seen how good Fejos was at a vignette, and how good he was at at sketching these characters out of a very small situation. And it's just a fucking heartbreaking thought that this other one he has is gone. Yeah. We don't get it. Uh, and there's, there's a bit of a list of lost films of 28. And it's not even that bad a list compared to, if you, be, if you get into the films of the teens, the 19 teens, like, forget it. You're, you're lucky if you find a movie in that era. I think you, you had John Ford as a good example of that. Yeah, John Ford made five films in 1928, which we will talk about soon. Um, and of them, one, Mother McCree, is partly lost, and another, his first ever talkie, Napoleon's Barber, is totally gone. Uh, which also, John Ford made a movie about Napoleon that we're never going to get to see. <laughs> but 
1919, nine years earlier, he made 14 movies, and only three of them have any parts surviving either. Jesus. So the 20s were bad, but the teens were a wasteland. Yeah, it's none of them in full either. Teenage wasteland, right? Yeah, it was a teenage wasteland. Yeah, there's, um, there's, we had, we came up with a little list of some of the top uh, lost films of, of 1928. Another one is uh, F.W. Murnau's Four Devils. Right. Which is regarded as one of his best works by people who actually were able to see it, but it's, it's been gone for decades. And I think it was last in possession of some, some actress who borrowed it to, to watch the print and they, they never found it. And Murnau's best work is not fucking around. Calling something Murnau's best work is every great filmmaker in the world in the 1920s, including John Ford, for the next five years was going to spend their career trying to make movies that looked like either Fritz Lang's or F.W. Murnau's. Most of them went with Murnau. Murnau visually with Sunrise, which is essentially the template for Lonesome. Yeah. And with Nosferatu and with a few others, Murnau created, I don't want to say created the cinematography of the 1920s, but alongside a couple other German filmmakers actually did do that. Like the idea of a, of a movie where cinematography is part of your storytelling was in large measure a German invention. And it was in large measure an invention of F.W. Murnau, whose only film this year, which is supposed to be one of his best, is Lost. And his boy slash rival, Fritz Lang, whose film this year, Spies, thank God, still survives. Yeah, there's a Blu-ray of that one, too. Yeah. Huge Spies restoration. quite a beautiful film. You guys watch Spies, right? Spielman. I didn't get to it. Oh, I'm the only one who saw it's it? It's a crazy yeah. movie. and uh, I, I have it sitting around. I never got to it. It's a, it's a long movie. It's kind of like... I, I think there's some quote on the back of the Blu-ray or I read it in the booklet or something where it talks about it, it as like a surrealist version of like a um, essentially just a spy movie. Like it's like yeah. you, you it's almost like you're not supposed to follow it. Yeah, it, it's just ideas. And it's like an abstract idea of following people through like a, a contemporary version would be if it was like if the Coen brothers in their burn after reading mood made Indiana Jones. Yeah, it's it. <laughs> that sounds great because it makes me think of some of like uh, of Fritz Lang's Hollywood stuff, like Ministry of Fear. Yeah, it's got kinda, that vibe. Yeah, yeah I'm going to watch this definitely. It's kind of batshit. It's batshit insane, I would say. And I'm going to throw a crazy twist out there and say in my Oscars for 1928, Spies might take cinematography. Okay. Spies, yeah, the camera watch. work in Spies. There are other movies this year that have more beautiful camera work and more elaborate camera work. Um, and there are movies that have shots that I've never seen another movie do. I mean, there are movies in this year, especially Docks of New York, mm. which is so beautiful. It'll like rip your eyes out and you don't even remember what it's about when it's done. It's so beautiful. Docks of New York is just staggeringly beautiful. Von Sternberg's. But what Spies is doing is almost harder than making a movie that beautiful. Spies is camera work so good that it's practically graphic design. I mean, Spies is like, you know how Edward Hopper used to do those covers for the magazines and uh, Norman Rockwell used to do those magazine sure, covers. Yeah. And yeah. you look at them and you're like, this is such a throwaway, you know, one month issue type of a deal. But every single element in this is so perfectly in place and so perfectly balanced. And it's like an ecosystem yeah you know and just in a in a in a in a painting you have 
the beginning, the middle, and the end of a story. And it, it's a story that's managed to be told in time in a still image by just where your eye goes. Spies does that for two and a half hours. And I, I find that an unbelievable achievement. And again, I can't really tell you what it's about. I don't even remember. Yeah, There's it, like a German guy <laughs> and a code it's, and it's a lady. Damn near impossible to follow, I find, but intentionally I think a second so. lady as well. Yeah. Kind of happens pretty frequently sometimes with, with silent films too. Like you have... Um, you have the fall of the house of usher this year the yes. surrealist version of it that it's it's gorgeous and it's got these amazing shots but I, I have no idea what happened and i can't recall the plot but it's okay because the images are so striking and uh imprint themselves that you don't really remember the context of what's going on in this scene but you just remember the the beauty and kind of the, the distortion of the image this is what separates i think silent movie people from people who just no matter what aren't going to be able to get into them if you can accept a story being told through you just by how you feel when you see something mm-hmm. and how you feel when you see a series of things, each making you feel slightly different than before, that's silent cinema. You know, like if, if, if you're looking for the, the rote rubric of somebody like explaining, you know, oh, we got to go to the corner and get the ruby from Gerald or he's going to smoke us. There are some of those, but yeah, I mean, they're out there. They're out there. But essentially, like, yeah, but what what you really get for the most part with silent cinema and why it's almost a distinct art form is you get these stories that are told by intuition, Mm. in a sense. You know what I mean? Which I think is why it was easier for um, the avant garde to coexist in popular films. You get this again in the 60s, which I think is a, an era very close to the silent era. But with the, the 60s, it was a lot more political reasons why the avant-garde became acceptable. Well, it this- was political in the 20s, too. I mean, it was, it was all that war resentment still. Uh, Cubism was, was basically invented to cope with industrialization and to cope with seeing things in World War I that defied anything anybody had ever seen before. Which actually is a nice little segue to um, Verdun, which is sort of World War One's United 93. Verdun is, is an interesting case of a film that is so ancient to us now that you almost can't separate it from the event it's about. Uh, and what I mean by that is Verdun is, is a docudrama about the Battle of Verdun which at this point was um, 11 years ago. But there's this funny thing about history where the further back you get from something, the more time compresses. Uh, and it's why we can watch the Flintstones where humans and dinosaurs are coexisting. You know, it just, right. everything gets pushed into this flat past. So Verdun is this really sort of meticulous recreation of the battle that you'll see sometimes in documentaries as battle footage. And you'll see sometimes, uh, like, referenced as footage from Verdun, which there is a little bit of it mixed in there. But it's this weird, uh, perilous result of it being so long ago, you know? It also shot in the actual locations, right? Yeah. Yeah, Verdun is pretty good. It's long as shit, is the thing with Verdun. It's um, a historical document that's really quite amazing to have. While we're talking about war movies and also sort of the, the visceral 
uh, feelings in, of the visuals of silent cinema. Let's talk about um, October and, and Eisenstein and the Soviets. Because um, October, oh, yes. 10 Days of Shook the World came out that year. Uh, and it's it's not as good as Battleship Potemkin, which came out three years earlier. But it's it's a piece of, of political Soviet cinema from uh, Sergei Eisenstein during the Stalin years. And sort of the, the whole, if you don't know about Soviet montage, if you've taken a film class, you know about Soviet montage. But if you haven't, basically what happened in, in Soviet Russia is that they had the cameras, but the film stock was so rare to come about, come by because of the revolution that they often would they get film prints into screen and they would snip off the blank spots at the, at the ends of the reels. And so they could only shoot really short shots. And so what happened is you get creative and the editing becomes hyper fast. You get really quick shots because that's all you had to work with. And the best of them, like uh, Vertov and Eisenstein, managed to make these amazing, uh, just rapid political films that really stretch uh, the, the limits of editing in, in film and really help write the book on them, on, on editing. And October, it's not his best work, but it's, it's definitely... You know, it's a good one. It, it's good to get a sense of what he's doing. And it's it's about uh, the Bolsheviks overthrowing the czar. Yeah, I, I got to be honest. It kind of bored me, but I have problems with Soviet cinema from the 20s. It's almost oppressive to me. But uh, oh, like Stalin, I guess it is literally oppressive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's another one uh, where you can see just the power they had with a camera was unparalleled in that era. I mean, nobody shoot, nobody can shoot like that again. An interesting... I, sorry, go no, ahead. No, go, go on. Well, I was going to say an interesting companion piece, uh, sort of a goofus gallant with October, is Borzegi's Street Angel from this year, which is a movie sort of reconciling itself with a bygone Europe and, in, and a war that seems to have never left anybody. Uh, but it's told so, so differently. If October is like the the synthesis of what Soviet filmmaking was about, Street Angel is like the synthesis of what American filmmaking was like in the 20s. It's about uh, this young woman who like needs medicine for her sick mother, so she goes and runs off, and then she meets this painter who's still haunted by the war, and they live together in a sort of romantic squalor. And it's all very 20s, post-Victorian, pre-crash, kind of beautiful, romantic poverty. And it's just so fucking good. That's um, Janet Gaynor, who has the actual Oscar this year for uh, that movie, and also two other movies. Yeah, Gaynor was just winning Oscars left and right. Yeah, they used to award them in clumps when they were first figuring it out. So I think Sunrise and and one other movie is in there for her Best Actress Award, but but Street Angel is listed. Yeah, Street Angel would have been her... uh, her second, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's part of this little cluster of Frank Borzaghi films about uh, streets that are haunted by bygone love and by the, the impact of the war, alongside Seventh Heaven and Lucky Star. Um, and it's just... I've, I've spoken about my love for that director a lot, uh, and I think his, he had these endless reservoirs of empathy that really speaks to me. And it's such an interesting oppositional element to October, which is, I guess it has empathy, but it, it has no romanticism. It has, 
It's what, a mirror. It has everything in the exact opposite direction. Well, here's the thing about October in, in Soviet cinema in general is that Soviet cinema kind of reflects the, the communist ideology of, of the community and kind of the, the greater good as they see it, but it, it removes the individual. There's no individuals in Isis. Yeah. Whereas Hollywood filmmaking and, and Street Angel particularly, but any Hollywood film, it's about the individual. It's about the characters. And so that might be one thing with with uh, Soviet cinema during the, the 20s is that there's no characters to really follow. There's, there's faces, and they're some of the most expressive faces in film history, but they're, they're not people you really get to know. Mm. And um, alongside it, of course, is, is Ford's Four Sons. I, yeah, that was... I was saying it's the perfect transition into the Ford zone. Yeah, the Ford zone. We're well, entering the Ford before zone. we go into the Ford zone, we'll take a, a quick break and then we're gonna come back and we'll be we'll be right into the Ford zone. So stick around, see you soon. Buckle up. And now Smug Film presents Robot Reenactments. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, why? We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world there is room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness, hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The airplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass, and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, Liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes, men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think and what to feel. Who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines, you are not cattle, you are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural soldiers. Don't fight for slavery. Fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written that the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men. In you. You, the people, have the power, the power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world. A decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power. But they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world. 
to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite. Hannah, can you hear me? Wherever you are, look up Hannah. The clouds are lifting. The sun is breaking through. We are coming out of the darkness into the light. We are coming into a new world, a kindlier world, where men will rise above their hate, their greed, and brutality. Look up, Hannah. The soul of man has been given wings and at last he is beginning to fly. He is flying into the rainbow. Into the light of hope, into the future. The glorious future, that belongs to you, to me and to all of us. Look up, Hannah. Look up. This has been a robot reenactment. Now, back to the show. Hello, I am the hunky smug film sponsor plug man. I'm here to tell you about the fine people who support the smug film podcast through Patreon. You all should check out Bobby Slow on Twitter, he's a very funny and good man who tweets funny and good things and is worthy of your love. And he has a really good Twitter ratio of followers to following. That's impressive. Once again, that's Bobby, slow, on Twitter. You should also check out Minor Key Games. Go on over to MinorKeyGames.com and check out these awesome computer games made by David and Kyle Pittman. Two brothers that make great video games with an old school feel. Cody hates new video games for the most part, but he enjoys the heck out of these. Once again, that's MinorKeyGames.com. Also, be sure to check out Room Full of Spoons, Rick Harper's documentary about the cult classic film The Room. It's a great documentary that we all love here at Smug Film, and go to roomfullofspoons.com to find out when it's coming to your city. Thank you for listening to my hunky voice, and thank you all who have donated to the show. And if you would like to be plugged on the show, please head on over to patreon.com smugfilm and donate. And now, back to the episode. Hello, Smug Film fans. Leave us a question or a comment for Smug Film to play on the show by calling the following voicemail number. 718-395-9711. Once again, that's 718-395-9711. We look forward to hearing from you, you lovely, lovely people. And we are back and now entering the Ford Zone. Which, Buckle uh, up, shitheads. Of course, John D'Amico's driving that car. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm the conductor on the Ford Zone Express. I feel like I'm mixing metaphors with that. That's fine. It's fine. Anyways, John Ford did a lot this year. Uh, he paired with John Wayne for the first time this year in Hangman's House, which is quite a beautiful film. Uh, and then, you know, he was in his Murnau period. And his Murnau period was kind of an interesting one. It ended in uh, in the mid-30s with, like, Pilgrimage and with um, The Informer. And these are John Ford movies that people don't, even Ford people don't talk about that much anymore. But they were massively popular. And the Murnau zone means, if you're going to be a Fritz Lang dude at the time, which a lot of them were, um, the guy who directed The Man Who Laughs was a Fritz Lang dude, you know? Uh, King Vidor in the Patsy mode is a Fritz Lang dude. That's a bit more what we would recognize as contemporary filmmaking. It's a little faster and brisker and leaner. Uh, but if you were going to be the Murnau type of, of a filmmaker, you were going for this thing that's sort of gone now, 
And it is part of the reason I keep coming back to silent filmmaking, this sort of lyrical, foggy, heartbroken, uh, lonesome is one of these films. And Docs in New York is one of these films. These almost dreamlike fantasias. And the, the stories in these ones are always pitched up very high. The best of his was Four Sons, which is about this German family who has four sons. Fucking amazing. Uh, and, and World War One happens. And three of them join the German army and die. And the fourth gets and takes a job in America and then has to join the American army because he gets drafted. Uh, and it's just this lovely, lyrical, expressionist, American version of a European art film. Uh, and it's an intermediate sound film. So we have music and we have an effects track. We, we just don't have talking, which was the case of a lot of movies like this. Uh, the circus was like this. You have a, a world of sound where nobody's speaking. Uh, and, and Chaplin could use it to make you feel sort of warm, to make you feel this almost peanuts thing when the teachers start speaking and mm. you just you don't care. But uh, Ford could use it to make you feel very, very lonely. You feel very lonely inside Four Sons. You hear the noises of the world, but you, you somehow can't bridge any gaps. You, you can't... The lack of communication is, is, is weaponized almost against you. you know, Brad, one thing, you saw it, right? Oh, I saw it, yeah. I was going to say, there's one thing that you know a silent film like Four Sons can do that modern films either... They can, but they don't. Uh, there's that scene where after... She gets the news that her sons have died. The, this mother. So at the beginning of the film, they all eat dinner together. They they all live in the same small little house. This this is their life together, and they all go off to World War One. Which is and, all that Murnau uh, pastoral stuff, by the way. You got to thank him. Yeah. For that. And so she gets the news that her sons have died. Her other son is in America. She's all alone. And there's a scene where they're all eating dinner together, and she's just she's happy, and then they just fade away yeah and she realizes how alone she is and it's the type of thing where you know doing it in a modern film they they might just do some sort of trick where you know they'll be like oh she was all hallucinating the whole time like you cut and they, then you cut away and they're gone or you know it doesn't work in the same way that a silent film can deliver that that emotion and that that illusion because, because you're trapped illusion. in the real world in a in a sound film a silent film, you're almost inherently in a uh, in a fantasy. You get this effect, too. In some movies, some things, especially horror movies, things will work in black and white that just don't work in color. And it's hard to explain why. And it's just this, like, feeling of being where you are. You know, you have the weight of real life on you. It sounds like what you were talking about um, that, that Four Sons does, Brad. I, I didn't see Four Sons, but... It, it reminded me what you were just saying of of like it would Cody get, does have four sons. I, I do have four sons. This is true. I just haven't seen my four Eric, sons in quite Dave, a while, and I haven't seen the film. Nathaniel, Maurice, correct. Maurice is a fucking shit. He's. I mean, I could go on about Maurice for the rest of the episode and not even scratch the surface of how that boy has wronged me in life. <laughs> but uh, it was reminding me of Ugetsu and kind of what what. Japanese cinema can do as far as playing yeah. with uh, the the surreal and with ghosts and with uh, you know drifting between the real and uh, the imaginary. Yeah, 
Yeah, and you just large in general, yes. But like in this particular example, sort of. But in general, silent film very much fits into that that mode. The difference is though, in in the sound Japanese stuff, you're always still sort of accountable for it. You know, it becomes even if it's not answered, it becomes a question. You know, it becomes this sort of like, well, what the the fuck was right. that? Silent films don't have to necessarily silent, answer. Yeah, whatsoever. silent films somehow you're you're not held accountable for the question of what what's really there and what's not. Mm. It's just Oddly, not. It's almost Oddly, like you can have a more direct communication with the story, the emotional story in the director's head. You know, like you can editorialize. Way, in a weird way, kind of some of the only modern you know, filmmaking that can really dip into the surreal and the avant-garde and just the, the unbelievable so suddenly without you questioning it. Music videos and commercials these days are some of the only times you can really give something to the mainstream that makes a no... A little more affected, though, I feel like. Oh, no, it's, it's a completely different thing, I'm just saying, but we've sort of lost that, I guess is what I'm getting at, is that we you can't just throw something like a ghost into a film without, you know, like you said, questioning it. There's there's very limited area to really be just saying, okay, yeah, this makes logical sense, or it doesn't even matter if it doesn't make logical sense because I feel it. it. It takes a very special kind of filmmaker to do that. And even then someone like, you know, like whatever, like David Lynch, you know, make everyone just kind of goes like he's the only person who ever did that. Uh, Lynch did can't do of, it. Like, Lynch can't do this. Lynch, it's all questions. With a silent yeah. film, you get you can have directors' editorials that can play unaffected. You know, you can you can speak to the director in a silent film without feeling like you're breaking character. And I'm not quite sure why. I've never really been able to figure that out. But you know, you have some silent movies where you basically have like the program for the movie going on in the intertitles. Yeah, and it just you don't think about it you don't process it as something violating your immersion because it's such a different kind of immersion i think that's a good jumping point into the wind which we want to talk the about the fucking wind but hold on yeah. we had we had another before zone. we yeah before oh, we go we got, into we, the wind we're not out of the zone yet okay. no we got another we, we got I, another I think zone we've pierced through the ford zone but cody yeah. has a zone i got i got my own zone i got the uh oh. i got the fuck zone we're now we're in going, the fuck zone. We're going Ford zone to fuck zone because we got two pornos. I think now we should have <laughs> called it the bone zone. Yeah, bo- bone zone. Oh. In in retrospect, uh, we'll call this uh, the bone zone because we got we got two pornos in twenty eight, and I think it, we'd be remiss to. Sure, uh, we got more than that that we didn't watch. Yeah, uh, but we we watched two. Uh, I would say two and a half because uh, there's another one that's pretty boring called Sex and Chains. Mm-hmm. It's not even worth talking about. But we have two. High profile, pretty dope porn movies. Yeah, what's what's the fireman one called again? What's the exact French title? The fireman of the Follies Bergiers. That's it, right? And apparently, the the story behind it was that people can't really deduce what it was intended as, but apparently, the idea is that it was like a promotional thing for like some place that people could actually go and see naked ladies. Was that the whole yes. case of it? Yeah. Yeah, it was a nightclub. If I can read my notes for the film. Sure. Can't stress enough the quality and quantity of butts in this film. Oh, yeah. A lot, lot, of, lot of 28 butts. and uh, Good butts. 
a lot of tiny translucent dancing babes. I would Basically, say. what happens in the movie is a fireman gets knocked on the head. He gets knocked on the head, right? That's the. I thought setup. he was drunk or something. Oh yeah, he gets drunk. He gets drunk and can't stop seeing everybody around him as a naked woman. It's basically my life story. Yeah. It's it's very uh, early Russ Meyer, because there, there's a Russ Meyer film from like 59 called The Immoral Mr. Tease. Oh, and, yeah, uh, it is a lot like thing. that. the same thing. I think he gets hit on the head, and he can like see through women's clothes. And so yeah. He sees all these uh, women naked who are fully clothed, and it's pretty much the same idea. I'll have and to it's, say it's, it's the like, same attitude too. It's so it's just goofy and it's it's good natured in a way. Good natured. Yeah, it's not it's not, it's not gratuitous either. There's no yeah, like. I mean, it's gratuitous. But there's no like leering like close ups of like parts. You know, yeah. What I mean? There's like, no it's, parts. It's, Everything's together. Yeah, it's you're seeing the whole lady, and also there's there's one butt in particular, the the rightmost butt towards the end of the film. Oh my god! Yes. Wasn't that the I greatest? Know that butt. Yeah. It was incredible. It was an incredible woman's butt. That was a good butt. Lovely butt. So yeah, she fu- was a little darker than the woman next to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Ex- I remember this butt. Yeah, a Brad, butt, do you remember a this butt, butt? That holds up nah. across decades and decades. Yeah, this is like a hundred years ago almost. Yeah, and this is still this is a, a butt quality that people could accept today. You know, like right up there with like Nicki Minaj or whoever else, whoever the the butt goddesses of of now are. You know, and Nicki Minaj, it's all fake anyway. So like, fuck her. But you know what I mean? Like, There's something nice also about just like removing that distance, mm-hmm. you know, like the distance of like enjoying a good butt. Yeah. It's gone for, <laughs> for 10 minutes or whatever. That distance is gone. Yep. We're there. It's 1928 and we're, you know, we're feeling it too. Absolutely. It's a connection across a great expanse of time. It's magic. It, it's an interesting little film because it, of the stuff we, I, we've been watching for 28, we've been watching finished films that are just for themselves. And with this one, it's interesting to see something that's promoting something yeah. else. That's essentially a commercial. Like it's still a sh- would be a good commercial. Yeah, and it's like in a, it's like an avant-garde like short film that's just a commercial, and it's funny and it's engaging, and you get you get your butts there. So th- that's a really Everybody, fun. Everybody, please to, let us know about that butt. Yes, because it's. I'm glad we had the same one in our head. Yeah, this the rightmost butt front row in the final grouping, right? Yes. And also... I want to be the, clear, we didn't discuss this at no, all No, 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 absolutely not. Absolutely not. This was a note on my sheet. I don't think it was on his sheet. No. I wouldn't have known. Also, a lot of these films, kind of like the upside to like the lost film aspect, a lot of these films you can find online. You, you can watch a lot of these online Fireman, you can watch online. This other porno we're going to talk about in a second, you can find on actual like streaming porn sites. That was like where I tracked it down. I couldn't find it on like a, you know, a film history, whatever oriented type of thing. But a lot of these silent films, these are films you can watch for free, guys. Yeah, it's a YouTube paradise. In college, I used to just lay for like a couple hours every night and just watch silent movies at like two in the morning. I thought just the college thing. I thought just the Fireman one. Yes, well, mostly that. Okay. Uh, God, so, that, I can't believe the same butt. Same butt. Okay, so the, the, this next one's called Mess Noir. Mess uh, Noir, which is what mass. I, Hey, I discovered this one. Yeah, I'm Wait, just going to say you that, really didn't. you didn't remember that butt? Did you remember any butt? I remember a lot of butts. I just don't remember that particular one. Do, which one, like, if you were like, that was the butt, do you have one? Was there one in that that you... Uh, I don't know. There's too many butts and it was so long ago. I mean... That's what the fireman went through the same thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, exactly. You so were I, I felt for the character. I felt <laughs> what he was feeling. Absolutely. Was, he, Do you wish you so saw his cute. butt? It would have been fair. It would have been funny. It would have been interesting. Yeah. He's a funny looking fireman. Uh, yeah, it probably would have been a funny butt. All right, so, so Messi. I'm gonna let you tell, explain the next one. Yeah, because I just want to say, I just want to preface this with, I it was like 8 a.m. and I had woken up, <laughs> and I made my coffee, and you had posted this in our little group Facebook chat. And I'm like, oh, this will be like the fireman one, right? Like, I'll just drink my coffee. It'll be goofy <laughs> and, and kind of charming while I wake up. And uh, yeah, uh, just uh, fluids and straight up hair. Porno. <laughs> and, uh, you, you can tell a lot of hair, a lot of hair, a lot of unflattering angles. It, it's essentially it's called a lot black- of angles they still use. Yeah, <laughs> surprisingly enough, it's called Black Mass. It's called Messe Noir or whatever. Uh, the thing that I take away from it most of all is I like to see that I, that I got to see Lucifer both both receiving and giving. You yeah, know? it s- was fair. It was probably more the, fair than the butt the movie. devil. The devil was giving pleasure and receiving pleasure. I thought that was very interesting. Um, it's essentially it's like uh, one of those films that get like passed around as like oh this is an actual black mass like ritual, but it's like oh no it's totally staged or whatever. Like it it has. That kind of like they're trying to make this look like it's an actual real thing quality to it. Yeah, this is what they called a stag film at the time, and it would have been played on a sheet in a rich person's house. Right. At like two AM at a at a party. And it's it's a straight up it's a straight up porno. Like if you're expecting this to be like the fireman thing, like like Brad, you're gonna be sorely mistaken. You're like, yeah, oh, they're doing plain old fucking. They straight up fucking various angles, uh an order to things that is very linear in the porn sense. And you see fluids, you see things happen, and you get a little, like, you know, fin card at the that end. That one man is so hairy. <laughs> wasn't that this a, was a tough one to get mind. through to the end. Wasn't that a great fin card at the end, though? It was, like, yeah. made, it was made up of people fucking. It was I, like, that was the best part of the yeah. movie, was the, yeah, it was the, the closing title. Yeah. This was, uh, I spoke rapturously about the cinematography of 1928. Doesn't quite hold up for this film. <laughs> but is influential in its own right. I suppose, yeah, this could be patient zero for a lot of what the internet is based on, but uh, not it's a very not satanic. a yeah a tough film to get through. It's only about ten minutes long. You feel them, yeah. yeah. And it's it's I can't stress this enough. It's straight up fucking. I mean, it's it. The vast majority of it is 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 Lucifer fucking women. It's interesting how much of the regrettable aspects of it are timeless. Yeah. Like what's regrettable in pornography today, which is uh, man butt and ball favoring angles. Yep. A lot of hair, light that just hurts, uh, weird kind of tacky costumes made out of cheap material uh, and, and sort of missing story beats. Mm-hmm. They've been <laughs> challenges of the industry for a long time. Very long time. It's not a bug, it's a feature. Right, <laughs> exactly. It's not a bug; it's a feature. And also, you know, to to sort of balance this out, we're we're leaving the fuck zone, but I think it's worth mentioning something. The bone zone. Yeah, the bone zone. Please, sorry. In which they fuck. Yes. Uh, I want to talk about Coco's Earth Control because that's one. Oh yeah, that, that was yeah. my most oppressive viewing. Uh, I, you guys are Coco's Earth Control is a movie I loved, and I'm pretty sure oh, Brad so loved, and Cody like just top fucking hate it. It's so, couldn't it, handle it. It's one of my least favorite cartoons ever. Basically, little Coco, who's a skinny, 
Uh, skinny clown. piece of shit. I don't know anything about him. He's a clown. He's just he a skinny out, piece of shit. He hung out with uh, Betty Boop and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. An early, an early uh, predecessor of the the Boop crew. Mm-hmm. Just this skinny piece of shit. He wanders <laughs> into like a room that's the Earth control room where Earth's weather and everything is controlled, and he just starts flicking buttons. Yep. Uh, Pulling levers. Yeah. Uh, the best description I ever heard of, of Coco's Earth Control was um, somebody on Twitter said this was the only post-apocalyptic movie he ever liked. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great, great thought about it. <laughs> I, I do have some nice things to say about it. I wrote down a couple. Well, before we get into the nice, what was the, what was your the fucking epileptic shit? I hated. The, the the lightning strikes and shit, that shit, it, it always pisses me off. I hate that kind of thing. Because you're a baby? Because I'm a baby. I'm a, I'm a little baby film watcher. And I don't like epileptic shit. That's my least favorite thing in, in cinema. I hate when people do that shit. This is pretty early to the epileptic shit game. Yeah, this was like, I mean, this makes, first of all, this makes like the Pokemon epileptic shit look like fucking, you know... I don't know. What, it turns what, out what it's it a little it more like? intense when it's black and white. Yeah, the I think that's what got me. It's very stark. It's very stark. It's very just white and black, just going back and forth at an alarming rate. It's it's uncomfortable. But there's there are things that I like about it because I like the fact I like the premise of it. I feel like it would work as like a sci-fi like kind of one room drama or something. Yeah. Like it's Did an you watch interesting. Watch any of the other Coco shorts. I've seen year? I've seen tons of uh, Coco shorts in my that day. That skinny piece of shit. That skinny piece of shit. There's, there's like Coco's haunted house and Coco's catch from this year. There's a, there's a, it's part of the series called the Inkwell Imps, uh, and I, I think they're all pretty great. There's only a handful on on YouTube, but they're they're all worth watching. Coco might this one Earth Control might be. I don't know that I would say it's the best, but it might be the I, most say complete. It's the best vision of the apocalypse I've ever seen. It's crazy. They it goes from zero. Way past 60. I mean, it, it goes, most post-apocalyptic stuff, you know, like a nuke goes off and they're like, oh, shit. This one, he tears the world apart so fully that the uh, the film starts breaking apart and then the hand of God himself comes down <laughs> and smites the skinny piece of shit. It's, it's just like, yeah, like Don Hertzfeld's Rejected is, is so famous for doing that, but this did this 100 years before that. Yeah, and a lot of the yeah. Looney Tunes stuff this did first. Yeah. Yep. This beanpole like, skinny piece of shit. shit. Yeah. Like, like Duck and Muck gets held up a lot for the how kind of it kind of deconstructed the idea of the cartoon character. Is Daffy Duck still this character when he's drawn as like a weird flower beast? Is he still Daffy Duck? Is he still Daffy Duck if he's just a voice, if he doesn't have a voice? But the whole thing about the, the hand coming down and just racing and drawing whatever it wanted to that comes from from the coco shorts from from well before in the silent era well what, what's that. interesting is the the birth of cartoons in movies is born into that sort of postmodern thing i mean gertie the dinosaur the is that windsor mckay yeah the windsor yep. mckay one from 1914 it opens with you watching windsor mckay draw gertie the dinosaur and then it pulls into the dinosaur uh, and it does doesn't he erase her at the end too? It does the same sort of playing with mm-hmm. uh, playing with the creator and the creation in the same uh, in the same piece of film. So it was almost like the 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 first idea anybody had with cartoons was to do that, and then they lost it for a generation or so. 
I forget which Coco one it is, but there's one where he like the the artist has a date and uh, the cartoons keep interfering with his date somehow. And so it keeps cutting between that live skinny action. Skinny cock and, block and piece of shit. Mm. <laughs> uh, Coco. His so, dog. So continuing with, uh, I guess, animation, we got to talk about Steamboat Willie. Yeah, which, we got that looming my, over My us. theory is that no the, only, the only reason people talk about Steamboat Bill Jr. as like this classic... Uh, Keaton, which I, I it has nice moments in it. It's just not one of his best. Yeah, but I think it's just because people hear Steamboat Willie, and that's so synonymous. They yeah. like, oh, Steamboat Bill. So that's probably good too. And it's like, well, eh, it's okay. Steamboat Bill Jr.'s got that hurricane. So don't yeah. don't don't the, go knocking Steamboat Bill Jr. The hurricane's incredible and classic, and trust me, every bit as great as you've heard. It's just not a great film as a whole. But uh, the bitch is Steamboat Willie. Mm-hmm. is that like if you're about to make maybe one of the three most important movies ever made you got to pick a different name you got to pick one that's not like a parody of a movie people are going to forget in exactly. a couple of years it should have been called like a totally original movie title <laughs> well it could have been called like mickey in the straw or something because turkey in the straw figures so heavily into it or or something like that but i i love how how little trivia, by the way, in the early ones, his name is Michael Mouse. Michael Mouse. That's, again, not true, but... Yeah. <laughs> I love, at least one person was like, huh. Yeah. I love watching his face as he's listening to Turkey in the Straw and how into it he is. Like, he fucking loves it. Did you ever play that video game where you're... Oh, uh, it's the best. Oh, yeah. You know the one. That's you know such the one. a this good game. This is the butt situation all over again with video games. For Super Nintendo and Genesis. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Where you're like... Mickey Mouse through the years. Yes. And you start out doing Steamboat Bill, and then it's when the you best. jack that dude up and it turns uh, the color in the end. Oh my I never god. Played this one. That was a oh, fucking Oh, you are fucking up, Brad. Incredible. I played the video one game. where it's like Mickey and Donald in like a magic land. No, that oh, this is way balls. better. This is way better. You you start out and you gotta you gotta get through Steamboat Willie, and then you're like in the mad doctor later, yeah. and you just keep going forward. I don't think I ever got past the mad doctor. It's a hard level. Mad Doctor was hard. I don't know. I don't know what came after Mad Doctor, to yeah. be honest. I, I still have that game. I got that game. Yeah. It's a good game. That was, that was, that was a great game. Yeah, the, the, the goat would get you. You know, he'd shoot music up at you sometimes. The fucking Disney Super Nintendo shit was a lot Unreal. of them really Unreal. good. Yeah. Lion King was hard as fuck and really good. The yeah, uh, Aladdin for Sega Genesis, though. That one is... Uh, but that's for Super neat. Nintendo too, Aladdin. They had that on there. All right. So we were, this we're talking about that, animation. <laughs> We got any more animation, or should we jump to Surrealist Shorts? I think that's a I think that's a good jumping point into Surrealist Shorts, actually. Yeah. So what we got this year? We this is a year before Unchain Andalou, which came out in 1929, and Unchain Andalou is the the Luis how do you pronounce his name Luis Buñuel and uh, Salvador Dali uh, kind of teaming up, and it's it's most famous for that shot where the girl's eye gets slit open with a straight razor. Hey, now, this spoiler was a year alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> that piece of shit Coco comes in there and yes. he's messing with everybody and they're like, get him out of here. And then they do. It's, I know where you're going with this one, Brad. You're going to Germain de Lac, aren't you? Yep. Uh, Le Coquille and Le Clergyman. And, Sick uh, French, bro. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is, I said the French. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, I don't know. How do I describe this one? It's, it's, uh, it's about like half an hour long and it's, it's one of the, the first major surrealist films to come out, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably not the best to jump to this one. So, John, do you, do you want to talk about it? 
Well, the best description of the Coquette and the Clergyman that you can get, uh, which is a year before uh, An Illusion Dog was supposed to have created Surrealist Cinema, which like everybody's supposed to have created thing isn't accurate. Uh, the best you can come up with to describe Coquette and the Clergyman is what the censors said, uh, which is, and I quote, meaningless, but if there is a meaning, it is doubtless objectionable. <laughs> Which is about as uh, as succinct a description as you can get of the relationship between the censors and the avant-garde and the avant-garde and the rest of the film community at the time. But yeah, it's a short, it's like what, like 30 minutes about there, Brad? Yeah, it's about Brad, like 20 Brad minutes, Stinson. like 28 minutes. Yeah, it's like a half hour of um, kind like of just like Bucky. stream of consciousness, dream imagery, and there's, you know, there's uh, mirrors, and again, it's it's sort of one of those like we were talking about earlier, where you you remember the feeling of it, you remember some of the visuals, I remember shots of it. it. Yeah, and the and yet it's in the surrealist films though were much more about that than the the narrative films were because they they truly went straight to the the consciousness and drawing from dreams. Th- this is really the the first wave of surrealism as as we know it today. What's what's the man ray film the from today. this year? Hmm? What's the man ray film from this year? That is a uh, Le Toit de Mer. Yeah, um, that one was that's shot sort of that's pretty interesting with the lenses because it's shot it's not out of focus but it uses a, a special lens to kind of add a a, a layer of a blurriness and it's it's very much obsessed with. Uh, yeah, like uh, like Wings of Desire in the eighties did. Yeah, yeah. So it it does that and it sort of obscures your vision to what's what's happening and it creates this this real uh, mystery around ordinary things or even not so ordinary things. A lot of it's ocean imagery of sea life uh, of people. Yeah, walking the seashell the- on the boob. This was a seashell on the boob movie, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it was. Don't leave me hanging with the guy. I can't just yell the seashell on the boob and then nobody's going to back me up on that. I'm pretty sure. I'm going to say yes. I feel like Brad really stabbed me in the back on that. Sorry. What else we got for Surreal Shorts? We got, well, we um, got Ghosts Before Breakfast. Yeah, yeah. Hans Richter. Which, uh, it feels like the kind of thing that'd be good to throw on at like a party in the background. Yeah. It, it's, a, yep. it's a crazy little... It's a cutie. Yeah. It's like... Uh, it's also the kind of thing where, like, if you're watching, like, a movie and they need something to, like, public domain to play on the TV that yeah. somebody's watching, like, I feel like this would be the kind of thing that would turn up in that context. Like, if it's a horror movie and people are sitting around. Yeah, like that stuff mo- in the Babadook. Yeah, and it's like, there you go. And they're, they're, they'd be watching Ghosts Before Breakfast. And the Babadook would be in the background. Sure. There's no Babadook in the movie as Not it stands, at all. though. But uh, it's something that like somebody should use as like a, maybe a music video for like a song or like it, it it be it. I think I'm describing it well in that regard where it's just like it. it you don't even need to pay full attention to it. Yeah, it's just a ghost being a jerk and yeah. a hat. Yep, it's hats yeah. floating and a ghost being a jerk, as you said. And it's stylistically, Norman McLaren would grab it later in the '50s. Do you remember? Um, McLaren was one of. Um, uh, Lucas's inspirations. Did either of you ever see the movie Neighbors? No. In, the, in like 1952, the short uh, where no. the two neighbors have like the war. You're talking about the with yards. the one with Jim Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. That right? was John Belushi. Oh, yeah. Talking about the one with Seth Rogen and Zach Efron. Yeah. Yes. No, Neighbors was like 1952 and it was uh, it was shot 
silent and in emulation of a silent style where the film stock sort of stutters. And it's these two neighbors who have like an escalating war over their property line. Uh, and McLaren really went hard on the uh, ghost before breakfast look. <laughs> you both would like it probably. Well, it's very ghost before breakfast. It's very playful in a way that people like assume people only were in like the sixties or later or something like it. it yeah. Yeah. It's, it almost does have like maybe I would describe it as like a 60s vibe. Like you could play 60s music over it or something. I think that's one of the big lessons you learn from watching silent films like this is that everyone kind of has this vision of it as kind of very stuffed up as is very Victorian in a way. And again, like going back to when we think of Victorian, we're not thinking of the ways related to our current society. But you go back and you watch these uh, these silent films and you, you realize how much was created here yeah. and how much is still relevant today and how much is so ahead of its time. Or well, it was such a similar era, too, when you really yeah. like look at what the 20s were. You know, it was this come down after this horrible war and uh, these economic crises and these ugly elections and these bad presidencies. Uh, and it was just this time. I think that was, was like, a ghost. Did you hear that? Yeah. Was, uh, Brad, did you get uh, jacked up over there? Uh, I think it's a motorcycle. Well, it's a ghost riding. It wasn't a, a guy dragging you to your death. I think it was Nicolas Cage with a flaming face. Yeah. Motorcycle. But yeah, you, you have this sort of similar cultural vibe that uh, it's funny because I think periods of movies kind of come in and out of favor according to that. Like, I think. The reason for so many years the the late 30s uh, stuff was so popular was because it was an era kind of like the 90s. You know, it was this sort of staid, kind of happier, a little more settled era. And it feels like now people, uh, film people, are starting to look towards slightly more volatile eras uh, and eras of like transition and eras of this and that. Well, because of streaming, you really can. You know, you can... If if you but also want, just because I think we're we're there, yeah, you know, we feel it. And if you but if you wake up one day and you're like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna learn a shit ton about silent film," you can do it without leaving your fucking bed. You just need a fucking internet connection, and you can watch a ton of great stuff just just streaming on YouTube. You don't even have to dig up like Daily Motion, you know, mirror links or whatever. You can a lot of these things just go right on YouTube. You can watch them. You so have. much is in the public domain too that yeah. it's not even um, you know illegal. No, it's yeah, not at all. Out there, it's right there for the taking. It'd be cool if it was illegal. Though. That's badass. It would probably wear sattlesses. It'd probably, illegal. Att- yeah, it would attract uh, more people if we. So let's just say we'll just say this is highly illegal. Yeah, wear uh, wear a leather jacket when you do it. Y- yes, and uh, yeah, watch your ass because they'll be after you. They're coming. But Cody, you had a you had a surreal short this year you really liked right little match girl i really liked that one yeah it was a it's a genre noir one and the old jr yeah and it's on like a three disc set of like shorts of his and whatnot it's uh it's a really interesting take on the classic tale obviously the hans christian anderson tale uh, I said that funny, Anderson. That's <laughs> Christian Anderson, everybody. That's <laughs> Christian hey, Anderson. Hey, look at him. He's writing storybooks. Yeah. This uh, fucking guy. It's a very depressing tale, and it's always interesting to me to see what certain versions of it will do to the ending. Um, they, I feel like that's always like the place where... Yeah. It's almost like when you hear... 
it, it's like with the aristocrats where everybody tells the aristocrats in a different way, but there's like a, you know, the ending is the same. This it's actually is, exactly like the aristocrats. This is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, please, you, you, you're going to want to clear your browser history if you watch <laughs> this one. In this, in this sense, everybody seems to take the end of, of Little Match Girl and put their own spin on it. So like it's it's always the same premise essentially that it's it's just this girl. You mean the very end or the climax? Well, the climax essentially, and and also the very end too. But uh, everybody deals with the same premise where it's a it's a very cold night. It's a girl who has to sell match matchsticks. Nobody wants to buy them. She ends up burning the the matchsticks to stay warm. And then where you go from there. Hey, that Hans Christian, he writes a sad story. It's a fucking, it's a tragic Everybody little Everybody look tale. at Hans Christian over here. Hans Christian Anderson. Uh, nice book you write and making yeah. my kids cry. <laughs> Fuck you. I probably first read it as like an illustrated uh, yeah. children's book. And it, it's, a, it's a beast. But th- this take, Renoir's take, he, he goes really heavy into like the dream sequence aspect of it. Yeah, I've never seen another that focused so much on that part. Exactly. Yeah, he that that's really what makes it his own, I think. Um he really just loses his mind just doing whatever he wants to do essentially. Like it, it, he has like a, a a blank slate in that chunk of the story to do whatever he wants and that's what he chooses to do with it. I think the best aspect of it is how like acerbic it gets right at the end like the final line i won't spoil but it's it really solidifies it as his take it's not really it, it's similar in spirit to the original story but it's it's like a it's a nice fuck you ending but that's actually the final line it's just yeah. fuck you <laughs> it's fuck you instead of finn it just says fuck yeah. you and it's um, like in the porno it's just made out of letters made people, of people banging yeah yeah, that's how a, every movie in twenty eight ended. It's a very classic final line. Uh, it, it's I think it's like forty minutes long, or maybe even less, maybe thirty minutes. I liked it a lot. Uh, I, I throw my uh, support behind it. I know you guys weren't as big fans of Little Match Girl. Renoir somehow never really hits for me, but it's it's sort of an interesting um, like litmus test, like which nineteen twenties thirty minute long uh, surrealist short is is your your horse. Yeah. Well, this is my horse. It's a good horse. It's a nice little horse you have. And it's a good name for a horse if I'm like an, entering it into a horse race is Renoir's Little Match Girl. Like yeah. that sounds like a, one of those zany horse names that people choose for uh, horse racing. That truly does, actually. Yeah. I, I think my horse is Coco's Earth Control. That's a great name oh, for no, a wait. horse. If we're doing live action, my horse is, um. oh God, what's the title? Life and Death of Nine Four... which i i was first introduced from your your blog shot contacts back in oh yeah shot contacts that's how i heard about what's the title again the exact title i hate you life and death of nine six seven life and death of nine four one three a hollywood Hollywood extra extra. yeah thank you lens by my boy greg tolan of citizen kane fame Mm. he played the kane in citizen kane (laughs) That's a good uh, avant-garde one too. It's like ten minutes long. Very um, influential on uh, Lucas, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's how I discovered it because you wrote a you wrote a little shot context about it. Yeah, I, there's that. There's a, a lot of THX to it. You know, a lot of that sort of numbered guy in a wacky world of weird-looking stuff, and uh, everybody's in the same outfit, kind of gulag-looking. 
Very gulagy. Hmm. Hollywood gulag, which would be a good book name if that's anybody a needs great, a book. Ooh, that's a good book name. Don't fucking take it, actually. <laughs> I take it back. Nobody can have it. I'll have to cut that out of the final broadcast of this yeah. episode. because Hollywood, Hollywood uh, gulag trademark. Yeah. John D'Amico Industries. That's a good name. A Hollywood gulag. gulag production. Yeah. I think my horse is either uh, 10 Days of Shook the World or uh, White Shadows in the South Seas. Really? You went for White Shadows in the South Seas? That yeah. didn't do too much for me. I I really like that one because it's, again, perfect cinematography. Uh, yeah, Robert Flaherty did it. It's... um. Oh it was built. It was built as a sound film, but there's no real dialogue in it. Again, it's it's a soundscape. They did a uh, you know sound effects, music, uh, sync sound to it. A lot uh, of ocean. Really gorgeous, and there's this. It's relaxing in a way. I mean, it, it's a it's a pretty simple plot about a um, you know a, a white guy who you know rebels against the plantation owners who are invading the the, the colonists. Uh, that are you know killing the natives of these islands in the South Seas and forcing them to die for pearls. There, there's a bit where a guy gets killed by an octopus. There's uh, a bit where they're just kind of you know climbing trees and collecting coconuts and, and leaves. And That's the dream. Just, yeah, just sort of it's very peaceful and all, like, almost almost like a, a Frederick Wiseman kind of way, where it's, this is how they make make stuff. Like this is just the process of making something. No commentary. We're not going to say anything. We're just going to show it to you, and it's it's uh it's just gorgeous filmmaking. It, you know, it's it's like if you've seen the Nook of the North, it doesn't have that weird sort of uh, you know, like we have to pretend this is a documentary because it's not. It's closer to Louisiana story. I haven't seen that one. Uh, Louisiana story is really nice. That's his forties movie. I don't know why it took him so long to get to it, but it's mostly just watching, you know, like a kid move yeah. his boat down like the bayou. That. What's wrong with that? Yeah, just like nice it. boat yeah. footage, bayou footage. Good vibe. Water footage, yeah. yeah. Like a less blank. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. All right, so we uh we never talked though cuz we we got too busy fucking in the fuck zone or the bone zone. But we never talked about the wind. Got to talk about the wind. Ah, the wind. Oh. Oh god, Lillian Gish. The in Gish in the, the build. Most- Gorgeous movies of the year because it's so again oppressive. Oppressive. A lot of oppressive movies this year. I don't. And, uh, I don't know that any were more oppressive than The Wind. I can't think of many movies. I guess Joan of Arc maybe, but other than that, I Joan can't of really Arc, think. The only one. I can't really it's think summer. of any movies. Period that have the same specific flavor of mounting dread mm. as The Wind. I can't think of well, any other movie that I don't understand. I should put it that way. Why no other movie ever so prominently featured sand blowing under the door? Hmm. Yeah, you know? it's it's and it just the way it builds up and the way just the door gets you know they, they're they're literally being uh what's what's the word uh, buried locked in. buried yeah yeah it's uh it's slow motion being buried alive it's another example of how the Hollywood stuff and the avant garde stuff could coexist at the same time because it's a straightforward narrative uh adventure story but i mean you could you could take scenes out of it and and show them as independent uh surrealist films because it's it's just these people in the middle of nowhere and the wind won't stop blowing and it's just slowly burying them scary as shit yeah so the story of this one is lillian gish who again if you're new to silent films and you've listened this far lillian gish is another one of the big silent stars uh 
mostly known for her work with D.W. Griffith, but this this one, The Wind, is uh, Victor Seastrom, and who was a, a Swedish director who came over to Hollywood. And he, he was known movie. by the the adage Seastrom shoot Strom. <laughs> so anyway, so Lillian Gish always is shooting Strom. It's true. Is this uh this uh, young girl who goes to visit some some cousins in Texas, and her cousin's wife thinks that she's trying to get with him and becomes incredibly jealous. And they basically force her to marry these one of two guys. And she picks the the better of the two, but she really hates them both and doesn't want to marry them. But she's stranded out here in the middle of nowhere, Texas, with it has to make a life. And so she marries this guy, but she hates him. She, she can't, you know, be passionate with him. And that, you know, just causes him to lash out against her. And then he he goes to leave on a, a scouting trip of some sort with, uh, you know, his cowboys. They, they leave on horseback and they leave her there and she's trapped with this wind that's building and blowing these these huge dust storms that are just growing, growing. And eventually there's a, there's a death. But uh, it's just, like you said, just building dread. And it's one of the, the most visually dark movies that's simultaneously one of the most beautiful movies of the year. While using darkness so heavily, yeah, it's just haunting, spectacular, upsetting cinema. It's it's as good as it gets. If if it weren't for Falconetti, uh, Gish would have Best Actress of the Year, bar none. Yeah, like, I could probably go with only that. Only Falconetti that really tops her. Another really spectacular one from twenty eight that uh, doesn't quite get the same level of um, notoriety as, say, The Crowd or The Wind or The Circus, uh, and maybe it's because the title didn't begin with The, is Shooting Stars, a little British movie that was just restored a few years ago by the BFI uh, that I watched just to sort of fill out my card for movies from 1928, Mm. and that just kicked my dick in. It's so good. Uh, Brad, you watched... Uh, I watched it, yeah. Shooting Stars. And Cody, you saw the beginning of Shooting Stars. I saw that crane shot. Oh, my God. Yeah, that three-minute-long, never-ending crane shot following a woman around an entire film studio. I Honestly, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like, and that's, that's saying something. Like, I, I, you sent me, you're like, you got to check out this crane shot. I was expecting, like... I oh, send a lot of messages like yeah. that to people. <laughs> I was expecting like maybe even like a 20 second crane shot or something, but fuck. Yeah. And the pools of light and dark that they're working with in that and the, the, the compositional, just the complexity of how many things are going on at once and you never quite lose the thing you're after. It's really remarkable. Uh, Shooting stars. We're describing it as this sort of grand, a uh, cinematography movie, but really what it is, is it's a pretty intimate, very sad movie about a marriage on the rocks between uh, two film actors that's so intimate and so sweet and, and at the same time has these shots that'll just roll you into their into your grave. Like there's this moment uh, in the middle of the film where um, if I'm remembering it right, Brad, you can corroborate. The uh, man who's slightly less famous is waiting in the apartment trying to get over the fact that his uh, wife isn't there. And she's very famous. 
And uh, he's worried that she's having an affair, which she kind of is. And the whole time in the window behind him is flashing a giant marquee poster for her next movie with her face in it. Mm. And it's just this like... I remember that now. Unbelievable. Like, just imagine being the fucking guy to think of that. Right. To be the one to like crunch numbers and be like, nobody's done this. And then to just like put her face like 30 feet high, hovering over the the poor uh, poor guy in the foreground. There's so much stuff like that in the film. And there's a confrontation at the end that veers suddenly from this a little more motivated uh, American British style of cinematography to uh, something more Russian to the montage style. Uh, Brad, you must have liked. Yeah, I am um, trying to remember back to most of it, but that's when mean, they're I, they're in the set, uh, and he's got the gun. Yeah, and then there's there, there's sort of this this sense of is the gun actually going to fire or not? I'm trying to remember uh, at the end where there's this whole it, it becomes like a movie set because it's it's a movie about you know stars making a movie, and then the ending takes place on a movie set. And it's sort of one of those first movies to really break down the Hollywood structure of, you know, is this real? Is this acting? And it's not trying to play like a trick on you. It's just that it's blending the two together of that this emotional climax, this violent climax is taking place on a fake set. And that that's one thing that it does that's really interesting. Yeah, and then it has that spectacular last shot, which is... Uh... Boy, if you like the last shot of the third man, you're going to love the last shot of shooting stars. That's all I'm going to say about it. Mm. All right, so you know, we should uh, we should probably delve into lightning round now. Yeah, well, okay, we got to talk quickly about the crowd because we've name-dropped it a couple times and we talked about the Patsy, but the crowd's really the biggest one we have not talked about. Yep. My so boy, that's KV. King that's Vidor King Vidor. Who is, who, is, who is an actual king, by the way? Yeah, he was. Yeah. Of, he reigned Croatia. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, the crowd. It's it's sort of it's a it's a uh, slice of life movie in a way, but it's it's done in a, a little bit like an epic in in some sense, where it's just about ordinary people living this their is, life. Yeah, this was a genre they that we don't have now, but it was big then, right, Brad? The 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 sort of city symphony genre almost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of. A cross between the actual city symphonies like uh, Man with a Movie Camera in Berlin, yeah. but uh, down to the Hollywood level of this is just, you know, it, it's more in the line of lonesome, but, uh, but big. But, yeah. uh, you know, giant. Big lonesome. Blonesome. Yeah. And uh, what, so you had, th- this is your note that we have in the communal Google Doc about um, Godard, what he was saying about it. Oh, that's not mine. Is that you, Cody? That's not mine. Oh, someone dropped a, a John Luc Godard in there i would it. never drop a godard quote anywhere yeah this is definitely you brad I'd, or a ghost i don't think i dropped it but uh in the 60s uh godard asked uh why were more films not made about ordinary people and his response was why remake the crowd it has already been done uh, smoked them mm-hmm. yeah so uh you know i don't have too much more to say about it because it's been so long since i've seen it i saw it when i was uh in a silent film class and that's really the last i fucking nerd it. And I remember we had to watch it on VHS because it just wasn't available on DVD at the time. I it's, think it's, it's still not. No, it's not. It's not? Yeah, it's yeah. it's still one of those where uh, if you want to see it, you kind of got to steal it. Uh, that's the only way. And it's not readily available on YouTube or whatever. It's it's a 
It's a tough this one year, to see, which is funny because it's it's one of the most like revered of yeah. these of these films. Yeah, ironically, Vador's other movie from the year, The Patsy, is like way easier to find it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and nobody talks about The Patsy the way they talk about The Crowd. Yeah, The Crowd's something you gotta like. It's not the same thing either. Yeah, you'll watch it in film school or whatever, but you know you kind of like I said, you gotta steal it. There's a there are ways. I, I'll uh, I'll leave it at that, but there are ways. Um, All right, so lightning round. Well, wait, before we uh, leave the crowd, I want to say something about King Vidor. He plays with, like, vanishing points better than damn near anybody I've seen. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, he's Mm -hmm. he's a vanishing point king, uh, Like that movie Vanishing Point. They should call him King Vanishing Point. He should have made that movie Vanishing Point. Yeah, that should be the name of, like, a documentary about King Vidor. Um, there's a shot early on in, in the crowd where it's a, a kid going up some stairs and the vanishing point is like essentially dead center and man, does it look good. And it's, it's gorgeous. V- Vidor sounds like he belonged in the Ford zone. Yeah. Well, Vidor, uh, vanishing point King, remember that going into his stuff and, and the crowd, is, the crowd's very, very good. The crowd is kind of unrelentingly, uh, human, I would say. Like yeah. it, it just you you're you're almost waiting for it to uh, venture into more of like an idyllic film uh, world, yeah. And it's it just stays right into the real world, but gorgeously shot, obviously. He's to King Vidor, an actual king, until he was ousted by Mobutu. Oh yeah, <laughs> that is true. Uh, the only active king to be making films. These are facts. They would say a lot, you know, making a movie like takes a lot of time and like you're an actual working king. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, but I'm the vanishing point pro. Right. And they'd say touche. And that was sort of the engine that drove Mobutu's rise. It's true. So into our <laughs> lightning round. <laughs> All right. Who's who's going first? I know John's got a ton of lightnings. I'm going to mix it up, though. All right. I'm going to I'm going to go nuts here. Here's what I'm going to do for my lightning round. I'm going to do a lightning round of lost films I wish we could see. Oh, Jesus. Ooh. Oh, no. So get your, uh, get your dicks ready. All right. So uh, William Wellman, who's a fantastic director who didn't release anything this year that survived, uh, but I would have loved to talk about Wellman. He got the first Best Picture Oscar the year before for his movie Wings, which is a really good movie about World War I flyers and the tangled webs they weave. He also uh, a good sitcom. Yeah, it was a really good sitcom, <laughs> Wings. Yeah. Well, he made a, a semi-spiritual sequel to that this year called The Legion of Legion of the Condemned, which is also about World War One flyers and the tangled webs they weave, starring Faye Ray and a freshly famous Gary Cooper. Damn. And I would have liked to see that movie. Young Gary Cooper was a spectacular actor. Yeah. Faye Ray was great. Uh, William Wellman knew how to film a plane, and that would have been nice. Uh, and then I would like to say, I would like to see Therese Requeen uh, by Jacques Feder, a French director who uh, it was just a spectacular visual talent. He did this movie called A Muck that I'm like mildly obsessed with. There's a subgenre of movies that nobody's ever seen that I can't not talk about, mm. and A Muck is a key player in this subgenre. Uh, and all you have to do is Google the surviving stills of Therese Requeen by Jacques Federe, and you will you'll be blown away. I mean, it really would have been something. Uh, there was also 
a silent version of the Howard Hawks classic Gentlemen Prefer Blondes this year, hmm. which I love that movie. That's one of my favorite Hawks. Is, I would have loved to see that. Uh, it's really a shame we don't have that one. Um, I thought Hudson Hawk was your favorite Hawk. Hudson Hawk was pretty great. All right, so my second favorite behind Hudson okay. Hawk. Uh, Wellman had another one with Clara Bow called Ladies of the Mob. And my boy Von Sternberg, who directed Docs of New York, which I feel like we didn't talk it's about really too directly. Good. Yeah, <laughs> it's but it's just hovered over this entire thing. It's fucking thing. good. Because Docs of New York is just, it's one of those movies that's so good, it's difficult to discuss. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's very little to say about the Docs of New York, except it is just intoxicating. Gotta well, didn't Titanic kind of grab from it a little bit with the, you know... I can see that. Well, the famous boat called Titanic that sank <laughs> was invented by the film Docks of New York. Correct, but I, I meant specifically like the shoveling of the coal yeah, and all that. Yeah, a lot of that. There was yeah. a little uh, Titanic there. A lot, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah, lovely movie. Well, he made another movie this year, Von Sternberg, called The Dragnet, and I don't even know what it's about, but I would like another Von Sternberg Jumping in on the lost films, just to, to round it out, uh, I don't know too much about Asian cinema during the silent era, but uh, idiot, the uh, <laughs> a twenty-seven hour serial that uh, might very well be the first martial arts uh, film ever made. Yep. Uh, the burning of the Red Lotus Temple. That also is a lost. dope title. Oh yeah, yeah. Twenty-seven I, I hours. I want to see that. Yeah, it's the first kung fu movie, and it you just can't watch it. And it's Go. gone. Yeah, and it's literally uh, burning. I guess. Tell another, about another, Clara Bow, yo. I was going to talk about Clara Bow. <laughs> this guy's so, got uh, things about Clara yeah, Bow. So Clara Bow, she's she's newly famous for, well, she had been famous, but the movie It in 1927 made, literally coined a term, the It Girl, because everyone referred to Clara Bow as the It Girl. And, Tim Curry uh, was in that one. I think the, the full title is Stephen King's It, by the way. <laughs> you can actually see this fragment, but, you know, she was a, a famous redhead in an era where films were mostly in black and white, and the first... The only known Technicolor footage of her uh, survives, but the rest of the film, red hair, is gone. And you can actually, if you go on YouTube, you can find this color footage of Clara Bow that still exists, and it's just about you know 30 seconds of it, and the rest of the movie's gone. So thank God we still have that. Uh, going into the rest of the lightning round, another thing is I'm going to talk about an interesting omission from 1928, which is talking about the stars. Uh, one of the biggest stars of the silent era, easily top five and the most important stars of the silent era is Mary Pickford. This guy this loves the, Mary Pickford. I love Mary <laughs> Pickford. Don't make fun of me. Uh, the uh, <laughs> This is the first film since she began her career in like the 1910s. That she, this is the first year she did not release a film. And I haven't really read Mary, where's your pick? <laughs> but she, her last film in the silent era was My Best Girl in 1927, which came out in like November. So close to 28, but not 28. And then she, she has some, some various tragedies in her life. I don't know if this is the reason why, but like her mother died in 19, in March of 1928. Uh, she, she had like alcoholism. Her marriage was on the rocks. I don't know if this contributed to why she didn't do a film, but she came back in 1929 only doing sound films. And then, you know, so there was no, in the, I think it's just poignant that in the, End of the the silent era, the last silent year. Its biggest star went AWOL. So I think that's a uh, just an interesting little point. Um, just going quickly through the end of the lightning round. Uh, Hitchcock had three films this year: Easy all Virtue, sucked. Champagne, Farmer's Wife. They're all garbage. Bunch of Don't shit. watch them. More so like get some, get some More good like movies around cock. them. <laughs> like uh, the year shit before, cock. he had The Lodger. The Lodger's then, fantastic. Yeah, and these all suck. Don't watch them. 
Uh, and Mary, where's your pick? Hashtag and then, shitcock. Uh, one that John discovered <laughs> that we didn't talk about is El Rayun. Oh, yeah. Which is just weird as hell. El Ray uh, Network? Did you say El Network? Can we talk about uh, Al Round's, uh I don't know if it's Rayun or Al Round. It's, uh, it's the goddamn movie. There was one in the 50s, too, about the lady who's, uh, she's made of roots. And she bangs people to death. It's like and species things. with a root monster. Oh, that's up my alley. Uh, but there's this one guy in it. It's a German film. And there's this one man in it who's flirting is just the most next level creepy thing <laughs> in the history of man. He's in a train with the root monster. And like a mouse goes by. And the root monster, because she's a monster, like isn't scared of the mouse. She just lets it go. And this leering, dead-eyed... You know, lids half down over his face, ashen face with dark circles around his eyes and a little mustache slouched down in his seat with the posture of a rapist, like leans into (laughs) her posture of a rapist (laughs) and says, um, I can remember the exact thing because it was so creepy and I'm going to do it in the voice. I think he's spoken little girl. You are not afraid of mice. You will make something of yourself yet. Uh. With his tongue half out of his mouth to like a 25 year old tax paying woman <laughs> in a full gray Undertaker suit. With the posture of a rapist. <laughs> do, do Mandrakes pay taxes, John? I mean, I assume this one did. She was loaded. <laughs> German IRS is going to come after her if she wasn't. Yeah, she was a Mandrake. That was it. We didn't, we didn't talk about how a Mandrake is made. Oh, yeah, you got a jizz on it. Yeah. Well, it's got to be well, a, a dead, dead man. a condemned man when he's being hanged has to jizz <laughs> as he's hanged, and in the the pool on the ground of the dead murderer's semen, it'll seep into the earth, and from that a little mandrake root will grow. Jesus, and it'll turn into like a bang monster. Who honestly, did make she up. didn't do that much in the movie. She wasn't that bad. Most <laughs> yeah, of the fine. time, yeah, she's just she hanging nice. out. Like she seemed like a perfectly fine lady. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I think there's that there's that one bit where she's kind of like doing a little temptress thing while that guy's gambling all his money away. But other than that, yeah, she's fine. Yeah, she's good. Strange film. That <laughs> yeah. one. Uh, it's a Cody, pickle. you got anything for the lightning round, Cody? Uh, I just like to, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Docs in New York. Um, yeah, let's do it, bro. It, it, first of all, as we already established, it's gorgeously shot. It's also like very harsh. It's very brash. It's very witty. It's like, uh, you know, it's these kind of characters that are, uh, uh, is salt of the earth the accurate term here? Yeah, it's almost like a Jean Vigo movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can see that even in the beginning. There's that beautiful shot of uh, the water and those, like, perfect waves that don't have caps just, yeah. like, melting. Like, it looks like the water is melting. It's so beautiful. And then somebody dives into it trying to kill themselves. You can you can kind of smell the seawater in this film yeah. and the yeah. air. And it gives you that beautiful shot, and then it interrupts it with somebody, like, leaping to their death. It's, it's essentially somewhat of a uh, love story, but, like, a weird love story. A lot of weird love in 28. Yeah. And it, there's a shot in it that's, that's fucking remarkable, which is, like nothing I've ever seen, which is there's a part where somebody's threading a needle and they can't through their tears 
and you see the shot oh my God, through yeah. their fucking the tears. Right. Oh yeah. Trying oh. to thread the needle and you're seeing it in like the teary oh vision. God. Yeah. It's fucking heartbreaking. And even if the movie was just that one shot, it would I'd still be fucking That's floored. That's the kind by of it. thing. If you did that in a sound film, it would not work. Yeah. Here it fucking works perfectly. And like uh, that's that's tip of the iceberg as far as gorgeous shots of the film, but that's that's really my favorite and easy watch too. Like fucking breezy film, like barely anything happens in the film and goes by really quickly and is really engaging. I really like Docs in New York a lot. That's that's one of my top picks for the year for sure. And we didn't even uh, get into the cameraman too much. Yeah. Oh wait, before we do, you know, Von Sternberg had a third movie that year as well as the lost one oh yeah uh the last command with email yannings uh in which he's like a czarist general uh and it's after the revolution hmm. it's pretty good it's not docs in new york good but what is yeah but it's um it's affecting and uh it's i mean he was uh basically a nazi collaborator by the end but he was a good actor that email uh, and he and he the had inventor, a face. the inventor of email. He did invent email, uh, which is a shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't need that. Uh, but yeah, the cameraman's really, really good. And like you said, that's uh, that's one of your favorite Keatons. I, I it's one of my favorite Keatons. Um, it kind of a year for the three. It kind of starts off like that Jake Gyllenhaal movie Nightcrawler. Yeah, where like the he's cameraman? only with a yeah. bigger camera. But he's like, it's like a guy who's just like trying to get work, like shooting stuff. And like, he's kind of, he's like a weird guy and he's trying to get in with like this crowd of like people that shoot stuff. So what a great double feature that is. I never thought of that. (laughs) Yeah. I I like, you know, I like Nightcrawler, but like it'd be much better if he just had this unwieldy camera that he kept banging into like, you know, news people as they're trying to like. Yeah. And he tried to sneak a ride on the back of a fire truck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You get a. Oh man, imagine Jake Gyllenhaal doing the playing baseball by himself scene, though. That would have been so creepy. Oh, wait, imagine Jake Gyllenhaal, a nightcrawler, doing the whole uh, Chinatown shootout. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, you get a great look in this movie, like a lot of old film cameras, too. Like, you you get an idea of what they actually looked like. Because so often in these films, we're not seeing the cameras they're being shot with. And and we don't know what, like. Those shooting stars gives you a little. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Um, I guess the one thing I can say against it is the music doesn't necessarily go with it per se. Well, watch it with a different score. Yeah, that's the beauty that's of the these good, things. That's what you can do with style films. I know. The scores, most of them are, you know, written today and then just added to the movie. Yeah, you can so, throw on whatever the fuck you want. So sometimes the, when I find like a movie on YouTube that doesn't have a score with it, I don't want to watch it just silent. So I'll put on like, you know, some sort of like, you know, Rob gate. Zombie. Yeah, Rob <laughs> Zombie. I've watched just like, Dragula uh, on loop, right? <laughs> I, I watched something to like the wall once. I can't remember. <laughs> was it Wizard of Oz? Was it the wall? Uh, no, it was. Uh, it was some silent film. Well, well, hey. of the of the three this year, the Keaton, the Chaplin, and the Lloyd. How do you guys rank them? I gotta go Lloyd first. The old I, Lloyd. I go Speedy, then I go Cameraman. I'm not as big on uh, the circus as you all. Ah. I'm not a huge circus man myself. Wrong. Uh, wrong. <laughs> okay, I'm wrong on that. Um, they, also, in the cameraman, there's that the there's a Mr. Bean one where like he's at a pool and it's fucking straight out of the cameraman, dude. It's like the same goddamn thing. Really? Yeah. 
And so, Mr. Uh, Bean, you sandbagging piece of shit, motherfucker! You know what I realized about Mr. Bean, and this ain't real nineteen twenty eight, but I I need a fucking avenue to to express this. Bean Chat twenty sixteen. I went through all the goddamn Mr. Beans. There's like a whole Mr. Bean Do you call DVD him Maestro collection. Bean now? I don't. All my memories of Mr. Bean, I just Maestro Bean. I real Maestro Bean. <laughs> I realized are the first couple episodes of Mr. Bean, which are very good. And then there's a whole bunch other ones that are fucking horrible. I also realized how much- I've never much- seen Mr. Bean. Maestro. The Maestro. The good Mr. Bean stuff's great. Um, the good Mr. Bean. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It is, it is great. Oh, man. That's a mid-century <laughs> British novel. <laughs> um, I realized how much Mr. Bean took from Pee Wee because I had it in my head that like- they were kind of both doing their own thing. No, when you go back and really look at it, Mr. Bean was grabbing a lot of shit from Pee Wee because it was kind of around the same time. But yeah, the later Mr. Bean stuff is fucking horrible. And the good Mr. Bean stuff is all real front loaded just at the beginning of uh, Mr. Bean. Uh, so yeah, that's my little Mr. Bean rant that I, I realized how fucking derivative Mr. I Bean was. I guess he's was. not the maestro after he's all. He's not. He's, he's a pale imitation of, uh, of Keaton and uh, The good Mr. Bean has Pee-wee. done us wrong again. When Mr. Bean is dope, he's dope. I would say even better than Mr. Bean is the Rowan Atkinson live DVD. That's fantastic. That 60-minute live thing was extraordinary. Rowan Atkinson never did much for me. Even uh, uh, Blackadder, I just don't think yeah. it's funny. I think it's him. I think it's one of those things where, like, I think he's just not an enjoyable person to be around. By all accounts, that seems to be what it is. And I think that comes through in a way where it's Maybe, just yeah. like... I don't know. It, I get a weird vibe from him. Blackadder is all jokes that are just incredibly long, and somehow that yeah. makes them funny. But Brian but Blessed, doesn't. I mean, his mouth is like... Well, the Blessed Brian Blessed. Yeah. His mouth in, in Blackadder 1 is like the greatest thing yeah. in the world. I mean... I got nothing bad to say about him. Yeah. Anyway, back to 28. Uh, if there's anything else we need to say, we should say it now because we're running way over time. So uh, y'all, y'all got anything else to say about 28? The Maestro. Yeah. Um yeah, let's let's close her out with this. Quickly, please. Uh, I, we're we're over 2 hours at this point. The 1920s. Let me narrow it. <laughs> <laughs> please do. <laughs> uh You have this sort of crisis moment in cinema now, I feel like, where it can go a few different ways. Uh we can continue to make movies that cost prohibitively much and then minuscule amounts and then that's it you know you you can deal with five hundred thousand dollar movies or five hundred million dollar movies and nothing will live in the middle yeah or we can get lucky and the system will collapse and a mid-budget of cinema will rebuild itself and we'll have a sort of like functioning uh middle budget middle ground of of like average cinema and that's it we're we're basically at a moment where the system's going to collapse or it'll be the heat death of the universe of cinema you know and we don't ever like to think about it but movies might just not matter that much anymore to Mm -hmm. people they don't get brought up that much they don't get discussed around the office all that much there's very few movies you gotta see and we might be nearing the end of it as like a major creative force, the way the novel kind of had its 
time and now the novel, it's not like a weekly discussion point or like classical music or even like rock and roll. They just, they hit a point where they're like, okay, this is as far as we go as the dominant art form in our, in our realm. And if you want to get some perspective on what that looks like, and if you want to get some perspective on what comes after that to some of these people and, and, and how things change and how stories evolve, look at the end of the silent era when they basically, an art form ended and another art form was invented. And they had to move back very far to move forward. Uh, and you had a lot of amazing, catastrophic, chaotic, weird stuff. And then it gelled like 15, 20 years later. Uh, I, I think you can get a lot of perspective on the emotional, uh, artistic outlines of what the next few years of cinema are going to look like if you look at the end of the silent era. Mm. This sort of expansion and collapse, this weird middle ground, and these sort of artistic dead ends along the way. And there's just a lot of, a lot of meat on the bones of the end of an art form. And that fucking Coco. Fucking skinny, skinny string bean piece of shit. Skinny string bean piece of shit. We'll close on that. Uh, Brad, thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. Got to have you back Always on, guy. Brad. Always good to have the Brad. Always good to have the John D'Amico in person. Back in say. effect. Back in effect. Uh, and the Smug Film Podcast is back now. Officially, we're off the hiatus. You're going to be having us every week. So, uh... Good to see y'all again. The walkabout is over. That's right. We're back in the groove. Thank you all for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye.